Simon and Schuster Audio presents Laziness Does Not Exist, a defense of the exhausted, exploited, and overworked by Dr. Devin Price. Read by M. Grossland. For Kim, who taught me that if a person's behavior doesn't make sense, it's because I'm missing a piece of their context. Introduction. How I learned I wasn't lazy. I have a reputation as a productive person, but that reputation has cost me a lot. To the rest of the world, I've always looked like a put-together, organized, diligent little worker bee. For years, I managed to balance professional success, creative output, and activism without letting anybody in my life down. I never turned work in late. If I said I was going to be at an event, I'd be there. If a friend needed help editing a cover letter for a job application, or moral support as they called their congressional representative about the latest human rights horror of the moment, I was available. Behind that veneer of energy and dependability, I was a wreck. I'd spend hours alone in the dark, overstimulated and too tired to even read a book. I resented every person I said yes to, even as I couldn't stop overcommitting to them. I was forever spreading myself too thin, dragging myself from obligation to obligation, thinking my lack of energy made me unforgivably lazy. I know a lot of people like me. People who work overtime, never turning down additional work for fear of disappointing their boss. They're available to friends and loved ones 24-7, providing an unending stream of support and advice. They care about dozens and dozens of social issues, yet always feel guilty about not doing enough to address them. Because there simply aren't enough hours in a day. These types of people often try to cram every waking moment with activity. After a long day at work, they try to teach themselves Spanish on the Duolingo app on their phone, for example. Or they try to learn how to code in Python on sites like Code Academy. People like this, people like me, are doing everything society has taught us we have to do if we want to be virtuous and deserving of respect. We're committed employees passionate activists, considerate friends, and perpetual students. We worry about the future. We plan ahead. We try to reduce our anxiety by controlling the things we can control. And we push ourselves to work very, very hard. Most of us spend the majority of our days feeling tired, overwhelmed, and disappointed in ourselves. Certain we've come up short. No matter how much we've accomplished or how hard we've worked, we never believe we've done enough to feel satisfied or at peace. We never think we deserve a break. Through all the burnouts, stress-related illnesses, and sleep-deprived weeks we endure, we remain convinced that having limitations makes us lazy, and that laziness is always a bad thing. This worldview is ruining our lives. For years, I fell into an awful pattern where I'd work nonstop for the first five or six hours of the day, running through as many tasks as possible without any breaks. During those periods, I'd focus so intently on the mountains of emails I had to respond to or the papers I had to grade that I would often forget to pause and eat a snack, stretch my legs, or even use the bathroom. 
anyone who interrupted me during those cram sessions would get a blank and irritated stare. Once those five hours were over, I'd collapse into a cranky, hungry, emotionally drained heap. I loved being super efficient like that, plugging away at all the items on my to-do list that had given me anxiety the night before. I could get a truly impressive amount of stuff done during those sprints. But when I worked myself that hard, I'd be completely useless afterward. My afternoons were utterly non-productive, with me mindlessly scrolling through Instagram or Tumblr for hours. In the evening, all I had energy left to do was flop onto my bed, watch a few YouTube videos, and eat chips in the dark of my apartment. Eventually, after a few hours of recharging, I'd start to feel guilty for not using my time in more productive ways. I should be out with friends, I'd tell myself. I should be working on creative projects. I should cook myself a nice, healthy dinner. I'd start to feel stress about everything I needed to accomplish the next day. And then, the next morning, the cycle of guilt, overwork, and exhaustion would start up all over again. Even back then, I knew this cycle was bad for me, and yet I found it hard to break out of. As terrible as my exhaustion felt, completing a huge pile of tasks in a couple of hours felt almost equally good. I lived to check things off to-do lists. I would get a rush when somebody would exclaim, wow, that was fast, because I'd emailed back sooner than they expected. I would agree to take on more responsibilities than I wanted to handle because I felt a deep need to show I was a diligent, reliable worker. And then, after putting so many tasks on my plate, I would inevitably flame out and become depressed or sick. For years, I would berate myself for running out of steam. Whenever I didn't push myself to the limit, I felt shame about being stagnant. Whenever I said no to a task at work, I'd worry I wasn't earning my keep. If I failed to help a friend when they needed it, or didn't make it to a protest I'd planned to go to, or a concert a friend was performing in, I'd feel certain everyone was judging me. I was terrified that any time I took a break or drew a boundary, I was being lazy. After all, there was nothing worse I could be than that. As awful as being tired, overwhelmed, and burned out with no energy for hobbies or friends was, surely being lazy was worse. I learned at an early age to tie my self-worth to how productive I was. I got good grades, and teachers generally thought I was bright, so they encouraged me to work extra hard and take on more opportunities and responsibilities. Whether it was tutoring a struggling peer in civics class or running the arts and crafts table at Bible camp, Adults would constantly ask me to take on extra responsibilities, and I would always say yes. I wanted to be helpful, industrious, and successful. After all, working hard and doing a lot was how you ensured yourself a bright future. I had my reasons for worrying about the future. My dad grew up in Appalachia, in an old mining town with depleted infrastructure. Job prospects were non-existent. As an adult, my dad was forever fretting about his financial future. He had cerebral palsy, which made it very difficult for him to write or type, so going to college or getting an office job seemed out of the question to him. Instead, he worked backbreaking manual labor jobs, knowing his body wouldn't be able to handle them forever. 
My mom was a dental hygienist, but she suffered from scoliosis, which left her able to work only two or three days per week. Neither of my parents had university degrees, so their professional options were limited. They desperately wanted me to avoid the same fate, so they taught me to plan and prepare and work hard. They signed me up for my school's talented and gifted program as soon as I was eligible. They encouraged me to get a part-time job, to take honors classes, and to participate in extracurriculars like Model UN and Speech and Debate. They believed that if I worked hard, saved money, and took on many of life's extra responsibilities, I could get ahead. I could get into a decent school, earn some financial aid, and forge a successful career for myself. As long as I wasn't lazy. Teachers saw potential in me, and they strongly encouraged this too. This pressure to achieve my way into stability caused me significant anxiety, but the alternative struck me as far worse. I was already beginning to notice that not all kids were encouraged to thrive the way I was. Some kids were seen as lost causes, because they were disruptive or too slow to master a subject. When those kids were still young, they received some support and some sympathy. But the longer they struggled, the less patience and compassion they got. Eventually, people stopped talking about those students' needs or limitations. Instead, the conversation became about how lazy they were. Once someone was deemed lazy, they were much likelier to get yelled at than they were to be helped. If a kid was lazy, there was no fixing it. It was their fault they were missing assignments, failing to grasp hard concepts, and not putting time into anything productive after school. Lazy kids didn't have futures. And the world seemed to be telling me they deserved what they got. Max also learned to tie her worth to her productivity. Like me, she came from a family that spent multiple generations in poverty in the rural South. Like me, she went on to achieve academically and professionally at a high level. And, like me, her commitment to overwork started to eat her alive. Today, Max is a writer at an information technology firm, where she puts together applications and proposals, as well as blog posts about the firm's work. In order to do her job well, Max needs a lot of support from her coworkers. They're supposed to provide her with detailed information on each project, completed application forms, and clean, well-written drafts. Often, though, Max doesn't get that information on time leaving her scrambling to assemble what she needs herself, while a looming deadline and an impatient boss breathe down her neck. She regularly works 80 to 90-hour weeks and seems constantly to be at her wit's end. These proposals have to be perfect, but I can't rely on anyone else to check them carefully enough, Max says. Every government agency that we work with has different requirements. Sometimes, it will be something as specific as requiring that we sign our forms in blue ink, not black. But the people I work with miss this stuff all the time, and my manager doesn't actually manage them. So then I'm in the office from 6 a.m. until 10 p.m. fixing everybody else's work so we have a chance at getting the contract. I knew Max had problems with overwork and overcommitment when I heard her complaining, for probably the tenth time, about having logged 50 hours at work in a span of three days. 
I noticed how frazzled she always seemed to be, how irritation about her job had turned to anger and despair. Her typical workday involves writing and editing proposals for hours, then coming home, ordering takeout, and collapsing in front of the TV. Often, she's so exhausted that she forgets to eat the dinner she's ordered. Her once-beloved hobbies, like witchcraft and embroidery, often go neglected. On weekends, she sleeps in until 4 p.m. just to recharge her batteries and recover from the stress she endured during the week. She sometimes schedules massages and vacations to help herself decompress, but on a day-to-day basis, she's irritable and short-tempered and often remarks on the joylessness of her life. I figured Max's intense lifestyle must have damaged her health, so I asked her about it. She said, This fucking job ruined my health and my personal life. Last year, I had an inflamed gallbladder, but I didn't take any time off work because I knew my manager would pick apart my reasons for needing it and guilt me into coming into the office. By the time I went to the hospital, I was vomiting constantly and had to crawl on my hands and knees to the toilet instead of walking. They opened me up and found out my gallbladder was completely dead. The surgeon told me it was the most decayed one he'd ever seen, and asked me why I hadn't come to them a month earlier. Then he gave me a big lecture about how I needed to take more sick days at work. I wanted to scream. When I met Max, we were both aspiring writers, sharing little snippets of stories and essays with each other on Tumblr. The beauty of Max's writing immediately made me want to get to know her better. There was a calmness and sense of perspective in her work back then, which I just don't see in her life these days. She's an intense person, a quality I admire, but her job has made her cranky and brittle. She doesn't have patience for inefficiency or anything that strikes her as foolish. Her temper can flare at something as simple as the pizza delivery person forgetting to bring ranch dressing. She hasn't written a short story in years. Max knows her work is consuming her life. She can see the toll it's taken on her relationships, her health, and her capacity to enjoy her hobbies. Max is also very aware that she places unfair expectations on herself and that she shouldn't force herself to regularly work twice as many hours as her job supposedly requires. Still, she doesn't know how to stop. Like Max, I used to work to the point of exhaustion and illness and had no idea how to make myself stop. Intellectually, I knew I was doing too much, but my fear of missing a deadline or seeming lazy kept me plugging away without breaks. I didn't learn to change my ways until overwork utterly destroyed my health. It was February of 2014, and I was putting the final touches on my dissertation. I'd known since I was a teenager that I wanted to get a PhD in psychology and I was finally close to attaining it. I couldn't think about anything else. I spent hours and hours in the lab, analyzing data long after my peers had gone home to their partners and children. I found an apartment two blocks from Loyola University where I was studying, so I wouldn't waste any time commuting to the office. I spent so much time there that I never bothered to buy furniture for my home or set up a home internet connection. Then. About two weeks before I was scheduled to present my dissertation, I caught a nasty case of the flu. I didn't let it slow me down. I trudged into the office every day and stayed late into the night, the same as always, ignoring how sick I felt. I didn't even stop exercising. 
Since I didn't give myself any time to heal, the flu wouldn't go away. On the day of my dissertation defense, I was still running a fever and shivering in my suit jacket, trying desperately to hide it as I presented the results of my research. I graduated. The flu was still there. I started applying to jobs. I was still sick. For months, the flu stayed with me. I'd do my best to ignore it all day for the sake of remaining productive, but every evening I'd start shaking and would feel so weak and faint that I'd have to lie on the ground wrapped in blankets until morning. This continued for months. I spent that summer bundled in electric blankets feeling absolutely freezing cold, even on 90-degree days. Still, I kept working. I tried to hide from my employer that I was debilitatingly sick. I felt shame over being so frail. I spent all my free time sleeping, but berated myself for being lazy. Doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. I was tested for rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, and mono, but nothing came back positive. Then, a cardiologist found I developed a heart murmur, and a hematologist found I had severe anemia. But neither could pinpoint why. I was still sick when winter came, nearly a year after the flu had started. No medical test or treatment could help me. No doctor could cure the mysterious disease that was plaguing me. The solution? which I finally discovered in November of 2014, was that I needed to rest. Really rest. No faking I was fine, no pushing myself to exercise and write and go to work. It was excruciating to sit around doing absolutely nothing. I skipped work meetings and forced myself to relax, because by then I had no other choice. My illness kept getting worse, and denying my body's needs wasn't working. I spent the next two months being completely unproductive. No juggling work and illness. No apologizing for being lazy by doing more work than was healthy for me. Slowly, my energy began to come back. The fever disappeared. My red blood cell count went up. My heart murmur went away. Once I was fully healed, it was time to re-enter the world and find a new way to live that wouldn't destroy my body the way my old life did. In the years that followed my illness, I focused on building a tenable life for myself. I had to learn to budget time into my day for relaxation and recovery. I abandoned my dream of becoming a tenured professor, which would require countless hours of research. Instead, I taught classes part-time as an adjunct and sought out online teaching options as often as I could. This allowed me to have a more relaxed schedule. I took breaks and defended my free time fiercely. I taught myself, slowly, that I deserved to be comfortable, relaxed, and happy. That's when a funny thing happened. The more my health and well-being improved, the more I noticed that my students, colleagues, and friends exhibited the same kind of self-punishing attitudes towards work that I once had. And just like me, they were beginning to pay a price for it. I realized that burned out, sick, overcommitted people were all around me. There was Max, with her 80 to 90 hour work weeks. My friend Ed, whose mental health was put in jeopardy by their commitment to the domestic violence hotline they worked for. And my colleague Alyssa, who is forever having to juggle the demands of parenting with the pressures of a full-time research job, all while being judged by her in-laws and neighbors for her child-rearing choices. Then there were dozens and dozens of my students 
each of whom had been told at some point in school that they weren't doing enough to get ahead, that they were lazy and therefore not deserving of happiness or success. I realized then that my struggles were part of a much bigger social epidemic, something I'm calling the laziness lie. The laziness lie is a deep-seated, culturally held belief system that leads many of us to believe the following. Deep down, I'm lazy and worthless. I must work incredibly hard all the time to overcome my inner laziness. My worth is earned through my productivity. Work is the center of life. Anyone who isn't accomplished and driven is immoral. The laziness lie is the source of the guilty feeling that we are not doing enough. It's also the force that compels us to work ourselves to sickness. Once I began noticing the laziness lie all around me, I used the skills I'd learned as a researcher to delve deep into the history of laziness, as well as the most recent psychological studies about productivity. What I found brought me both massive relief and deep frustration. Research on productivity, burnout, and mental health all suggest that the average workday is far too long, and that other commitments that we often think of as normal, such as a full course load at college or a commitment to weekly activism, are not sustainable for most people. I also came to see how the thing that we call laziness is often actually a powerful self-preservation instinct. When we feel unmotivated, directionless, or lazy, it's because our bodies and minds are screaming for some peace and quiet. When we learn to listen to those persistent feelings of tiredness and to honor them, we can finally begin to heal. I spoke with therapists and corporate coaches and learned about the steps a person can take to establish limits in their professional and personal lives. I found that by advocating for our right to be lazy, we can carve out space in our lives for play, relaxation, and recovery. I also discovered the immense relief that comes when we cease tying our self-image to how many items we check off our to-do lists. The laziness we've all been taught to fear does not exist. There is no morally corrupt, slothful force inside us, driving us to be unproductive for no reason. It's not evil to have limitations and to need breaks. Feeling tired or unmotivated is not a threat to our self-worth. In fact, the feelings we write off as laziness are some of humanity's most important instincts, a core part of how we stay alive and thrive in the long term. This book is a full-throated defense of the behaviors that get maligned as laziness and the people who have been written off as lazy by society. It contains practical advice for how to draw better boundaries in all the areas of your life where you might run the risk of overcommitting, scripts for how to defend your boundaries and limits to other people, and tons of reassurance that your worst fear, that you are an irredeemably lazy person, is entirely misplaced. When people run out of energy or motivation, there's a good reason for it. Tired, burned out people aren't struggling with some shameful, evil inner laziness. Rather, they're struggling to survive in an overly demanding, workaholic culture that berates people for having basic needs. We don't have to keep pushing ourselves to the brink 
ignoring our body's alarm bells and punishing ourselves with self-recrimination. We don't have to deny ourselves breaks. We don't have to fear laziness. Laziness does not exist. Chapter 1. The Laziness Lie I work in downtown Chicago, just off Michigan Avenue. Every morning, I make my way through throngs of tired commuters and slow-moving tourists, passing at least half a dozen people sitting on street corners asking for change. Many times I've witnessed a suburban-looking parent discouraging their kid from giving money to a nearby homeless person. They say the typical things people say about giving money to homeless folks. They're just going to spend the money on drugs or alcohol. They're faking being homeless. If they want to improve their lives, all they need to do is stop being lazy and get a job. It enrages me to hear people saying these things, because I know surviving as a homeless person is a huge amount of work. When you're homeless, every day is a struggle to locate a safe, warm, secure bit of shelter. You're constantly lugging all your possessions and resources around. If you put your stuff down for a second, you run the risk of it getting stolen or thrown out. If you've been homeless for more than a few days, you're probably nursing untreated injuries or struggling with mental or physical illness or both. You never get a full night's sleep. You have to spend the entire day begging for enough change to buy a meal or to pay the fee required to enter a homeless shelter. If you're on any government benefits, you have to attend regular meetings with caseworkers, doctors, and therapists to prove that you deserve access to health care and food. You're constantly traumatized, sick, and run ragged. You have to endure people berating you, threatening you, and throwing you out of public spaces for no reason. You're fighting to survive every single day, and people have the audacity to call you lazy. I know all of this because I have friends who've been homeless. My friend Kim spent a summer living in a Walmart parking lot after a landlord kicked them, their partner, and their two children out of the apartment they all shared. The hardest part of being homeless, Kim told me, was the stigma and judgment. If people didn't realize Kim was homeless, then they and their kids would be allowed to spend the better part of a day in a McDonald's drinking Cokes, charging their phones, and staying out of the oppressive heat. But the second someone realized Kim was homeless, they transformed in people's minds from a tired but capable parent to an untrustworthy, lazy drain on society. It didn't matter how Kim and their children dressed, how they acted, how much food they bought. Once the label of lazy was on them, there was no walking it back. They'd be thrown out of the business without hesitation. Our culture hates the lazy. Unfortunately, we have a very expansive definition of what laziness is. A drug addict who's trying to get clean but keeps having relapses. Too lazy to overcome their disorder. An unemployed person with depression who barely has the energy to get out of bed, let alone to apply for a job. They're lazy too. My friend Kim, who spent every day searching for resources and shelter, worked a full-time job, and still made time to teach their kids math and reading in the back of a broken RV that their family slept in? Clearly, a very lazy person, someone who just needed to work harder to bring themselves out of poverty. The word lazy is almost always used with a tone of moral judgment and condemnation. 
When we call someone lazy, we don't simply mean they lack energy. We're implying that there is something terribly wrong or lacking with them, that they deserve all the bad things that come their way as a result. Lazy people don't work hard enough. They made bad decisions when good ones seemed just as feasible. Lazy people don't deserve help, patience, or compassion. It can be comforting, in a sick way, to dismiss people's suffering like this. If all the homeless people I see on the street are in that position because they're lazy, I don't have to give them a cent. If every person who's ever been jailed for drug possession was simply too lazy to get a real job, I don't have to worry about drug policy reform. And if every student who gets bad grades in my classes is simply too lazy to study, then I never have to change my teaching methods or offer any extensions on late assignments. Life, however, is not that simple. The vast majority of homeless people are victims of trauma and abuse. Most homeless teens are on the street either because homophobic or transphobic parents kicked them out, or the foster system failed them. Many chronically unemployed adults have at least one mental illness, and the longer they remain unemployed, the worse their symptoms will generally get and the harder it becomes for employers to consider them as a prospect. When a drug addict fails to recover from substance use, they're typically facing additional challenges such as poverty and trauma, which make drug treatment very complex and difficult. The people we've been taught to judge for not trying hard enough are almost invariably the people fighting valiantly against the greatest number of unseen barriers and challenges. I've noticed this in my professional life as well. Every single time I've checked in with a seemingly lazy and underperforming student, I've discovered that they're facing massive personal struggles, including mental health issues, immense work stress, or the demands of caring for a sick child or elderly relative. I once had a student who experienced the death of a parent, followed by the destruction of their house in a natural disaster, then the hospitalization of their depressed daughter, all in one 16-week semester. That student still felt bad for missing assignments, despite everything she was going through. She was certain people would accuse her of faking all these tragedies, so she carried documentation with her everywhere she went to prove that these things had happened to her. The fear of seeming lazy runs that deep. Why do we view people as lazy when they have so much on their plates? One reason is that most human suffering is invisible to an outside observer. Unless a student tells me that they're dealing with an anxiety disorder, poverty, or caring for a sick child, I'll never know. If I don't have a conversation with the homeless person near my bus stop, I'll never hear about his traumatic brain injury and how that affects basic daily tasks like getting dressed in the morning. If I have an underperforming coworker, I have no way of knowing that their low motivation is caused by chronic depression. They might just look apathetic to me, when really they're running on fumes. When you've been alienated by society over and over again, you tend to look totally checked out, even if you're really busting your ass. The people we dismiss as lazy are often individuals who've been pushed to their absolute limits. They're dealing with immense loads of baggage and stress, and they're working very hard. But because the demands placed on them exceed their available resources, it can look to us like they're doing nothing at all. 
We're also taught to view people's personal challenges as unacceptable excuses. Z is re-entering the job market after years of combating a heroin addiction. He's been hard at work fighting his addiction in rehabilitation programs, learning life skills in group therapy, and rebuilding his sense of self by doing volunteer work. Yet, when potential employers look at Z's resume, all they see is a gap in employment that's several years wide, which makes it seem like Z spent all that time doing nothing. Even some of Z's family and friends think of those years of recovery as wasted time. We know that drug addiction is a behavioral and mental disorder, and we know that statistically, most people attempt sobriety several times before they succeed. Yet, we tend to view people with substance abuse disorders as if they're morally responsible for having them, and as if every relapse is a choice they gleefully made. This isn't just true of how we view and judge other people. We also do this to ourselves. Most of us tend to hold ourselves to ridiculously high standards. We feel that we should be doing more, resting less often, and having fewer needs. We think our personal challenges, such as depression, childcare needs, anxiety, trauma, lower back pain, or simply being human, aren't good enough excuses for having limits and being tired. We expect ourselves to achieve at a superhuman level, and when we fail to do so, we chastise ourselves for being lazy. We have all been lied to about laziness. Our culture has us convinced that success requires nothing more than willpower, that pushing ourselves to the point of collapse is morally superior to taking it easy. We've been taught that any limitation is a sign of laziness and therefore undeserving of love or comfort. This is the laziness lie, and it's all around us, making us judgmental, stressed, and overextended, all while convincing us that we're actually doing too little. In order to move past the laziness lie, we must confront it and dissect it so we can see the poisonous influence it has exerted on our lives, our belief systems, and how we relate to other people. What is the laziness lie? The laziness lie is a belief system that says hard work is morally superior to relaxation, that people who aren't productive have less innate value than productive people. It's an unspoken yet commonly held set of ideas and values. It affects how we work, how we set limits in our relationships, our views on what life is supposed to be about. The laziness lie has three main tenets. They are 1. Your worth is your productivity. 2. You cannot trust your own feelings and limits. 3. There is always more you could be doing. How do we get indoctrinated with the laziness lie? For the most part, parents don't sit their kids down and feed them these principles. Instead, people absorb them through years of observation and pattern recognition. When a parent tells their child not to give a homeless person money because that homeless person is too lazy to deserve it, the seed of the laziness lie is planted in the kid's brain. When a TV show depicts a disabled person somehow overcoming their disability through sheer willpower rather than by receiving the accommodations they deserve, the laziness lie grows a bit stronger. And whenever a manager questions or berates an employee for taking a much-needed sick day, the laziness lie extends its tendrils even further into a person's psyche. We live in a world where hard work is rewarded and having needs and limitations is seen as a source of shame. 
It's no wonder so many of us are constantly overexerting ourselves, saying yes out of fear of how we'll be perceived for saying no. Even if you think you don't fully agree with the three tenets of the laziness lie, you've probably absorbed its messages and let those messages affect how you set goals and how you view other people. As I break down each of these statements, consider how deeply they're ingrained in your psyche and how they might influence your behavior on a day-to-day basis. Your worth is your productivity. When we talk to children and teenagers about the future, we ask them what they want to do. In other words, what kind of value they want to contribute to society and to an employer. We don't ask nearly as often what they're passionate about or what makes them feel happy or at peace. As adults, we define people by their jobs. He's an actor. She's a mortician. Categorizing them based on the labor they provide to others. When a formerly productive person becomes less so due to injury, illness, tragedy, or even aging, we often talk about it in hushed, shameful tones, assuming the person has lost a core part of their identity. When we don't have work to do, it can feel like we don't have a reason to live. It makes complete sense, of course, that many of us think and talk in these ways. In our world, a comfortable, safe life is far from guaranteed. People who don't or can't work tend to suffer. Unemployed and impoverished people die at much younger ages than their employed or middle-class peers. Since we live in a world that's structured around work, not working can leave a person socially isolated, exacerbating whatever mental and physical health problems they might be dealing with. The stakes of not being productive are dire. As a result, many of us live in a constant state of stress about our financial and professional futures, which means feeling a ton of anxiety about how much we're working. Michael is a bartender. He lives in fear that he's not working enough. He grew up on the south side of Chicago in a working-class Italian family that dealt with a lot of dysfunction and mental illness. He carved out a life for himself despite all that, and learned a skill that's always in demand. Now he can't say no to a job. When you're a talented bartender in Chicago, you get asked to cover a lot of people's shifts. Michael snaps up every job offered to him, hopping from bar to bar all across the city, even if it means getting only a couple hours of sleep in the wee hours of the morning. It took me weeks to even schedule an interview with him because his schedule was so overfilled. My entire life has been burnout, Michael tells me. When I owned my own bar, I worked 90 hours a week every week. I was sleeping on the floor of the men's bathroom at night. I was booking the events, writing the food menu, writing the cocktail menu, getting orders from our suppliers, and doing the actual bartending. Then the bar went under, and I had to start taking whatever other jobs came my way. Michael has always lived this way. As a teenager, he was a ballet dancer. The unforgiving, workaholic world of ballet taught him to fill every waking hour with training and practice, and to ignore any signs that his body was breaking down. He carried that same level of commitment into the adult world, where he worked without relent for decades. Even when he travels, he puts out feelers for bartending shifts he can pick up while he's in town. He's never known a break. He keeps a meticulous spreadsheet of his hours and earnings, and the figures are mind-boggling. 
I worked 380 hours this March, he tells me. For reference, a standard 40-hour work week adds up to about 160 hours per month. The consequences of Michael's compulsive work habits mirrored mine and Max's in many eerie ways. A few years ago, when the bar Michael owned was failing, stress caused him to start vomiting blood. He also developed a nasty chill that would overtake him every evening, as would happen with me. Yet he kept pushing through his illness, hoping that by working harder, he could save his business. Those of us who are particularly lucky get to retire after years of living this way. But because we've been taught to make work the center of our identities, we don't know how to handle the change of pace. Retired people often become depressed and see their lives as devoid of purpose. Like unemployed people, retired folks often report feeling directionless and lonesome. Their isolation and lack of daily structure can make them sick, putting them at an elevated risk of heart disease. Many of us spend our entire adult lives dreading this period of life, or we put it off by continuing to work past the point that's healthy for us. When the coronavirus hit Chicago and all the bars shut down, Michael was immediately overtaken by panic and dread. He had worked nearly every day of his adult life, and with the bars closed, he had no idea what to do with himself or how he would go about making money. So he set out to open a speakeasy in an empty storefront in the city. He knew a lot of other service industry folks, and some of them knew which vacated buildings he could sneak into to set up an illegal bar. Many of Michael's non-service industry friends were shocked that he would put his life and his friends' lives at risk in this way, exposing himself and everyone he knew to the virus by opening up shop. Eventually, someone persuaded him to reconsider. While I was also dismayed by Michael's speakeasy plan, I understood why it made sense to him. Life had forced him to be self-sufficient, and his only escape from adversity was to work hard without consideration for how much it might hurt him. Work had already made Michael puke blood in the past. From his perspective, risking acute respiratory syndrome didn't seem all that different. Two weeks into social distancing, Michael texted me, I can't wait to have a damn job again. This is the most time off I've had since I was 14, and I'm going crazy. Lots of us are like Michael. Even if our choices don't always look as extreme, we are unable to cut back on work, always reflexively taking on new responsibilities out of a compulsive fear that if we don't, our lives will fall apart. We've had to trade our health for our financial or professional well-being, choosing between getting adequate time for rest, exercise, and socializing, and logging enough hours to get by. Tragically, many of us do this not out of paranoia, but because we know just how economically vulnerable we really are. An international disaster like COVID-19 only convinced Michael he was smart to have overworked as much as he did in the past. If he hadn't, he would have had an even smaller financial nest egg to survive on. Chronic overcommitters are experts at ignoring their bodily needs. Our economic system and culture have taught us that having needs makes us weak and that limits are negotiable. We learn to neglect ourselves and see health as a resource we can trade for money or accomplishments. This brings us to the second tenet of the laziness lie. 
that we cannot trust our own feelings of exhaustion or sickness, and that none of our limitations are acceptable. You cannot trust your own feelings and limits. Eric Boyd is a successful fiction writer, but he struggles constantly with the fear that he's going to screw up and lose everything. His fear comes from a very reasonable place. Before he became an author, he was in prison. He knows more intimately than most of us that the comfort and security his work has brought him could dry up at any moment. As someone with a prison record, he can't dive into the workforce with the same ease that many of us can. So even though his schedule is filled with speaking engagements, teaching opportunities, and paid writing gigs, Eric keeps signing up to participate in paid clinical trials and other side hustles. He never says no to a writing or performance opportunity, even if it means traveling in the middle of the night from one city to another. He still fears that if he doesn't keep pushing himself to the limit, he will descend into laziness and never recover. I've talked to dozens and dozens of overworked people, and this fear is one almost all of them share. The people who log the most hours, who run themselves the most ragged, who say yes far more often than is actually sustainable for them, are the ones who most suspect that they're lazy. They seem plagued by the fear that deep down they're selfish, needy, and unmotivated. It may sound like a paradox, but it's a core part of the laziness lie perhaps the one with the most dangerous consequences. The laziness lie tells us that we're all at risk of becoming slothful and unaccomplished, and that every sign of weakness is suspect. It has many of us convinced that deep down we're not the driven, accomplished people we pretend to be. That the only way to overcome our selfish, sluggish instincts is to never listen to our bodies, never give ourselves a break, and never use illness as a reason to slow down. This aspect of the laziness lie teaches us to fear and loathe our own basic needs. Feeling tired? That isn't a sign that you need sleep. You're just being lazy. Having trouble focusing on something complicated? It's not because you're distracted and overwhelmed. It's the opposite. You actually need to be taking more on in order to keep yourself sharp. Do you find yourself hating a job you once loved? You're just being a baby. You need to push yourself harder to overcome how shamefully unmotivated you're feeling. When we buy into this belief system, it becomes very difficult to identify our needs and advocate for ourselves. Back in 2014, when I was debilitatingly sick, I found myself doubting my illness at times. I'd wonder if I was somehow making the fevers up in my mind and secretly manipulating my friends and loved ones into feeling sorry for me. Even my doctor doubted I was as sick as I said I was. He made me record my temperature every evening in a little journal that I brought to his office. We both discovered I'd been running a fever of 103 degrees nearly every evening. Even then, I still felt guilty about being such a bother. I couldn't understand why willpower wasn't enough to make me well. Our bodies and minds have many early alert signals that warn us about oncoming colds, hunger, dehydration, or mental fatigue. If you wake up with a sore throat or a sour taste in your mouth, you can plan ahead, rest up, and nip a virus in the bud. If you find yourself distracted by persistent thoughts of food, it might remind you to grab a snack instead of waiting for full-blown hunger pangs to come. And if reading a single page in a book is too mentally taxing, 
you can take that as a sign that your brain needs to do something more relaxing for a while. According to the laziness lie, however, these are not useful warning signs. They're deceptions. You don't need a snack, a cup of tea, or a languid Sunday in bed. Those are just your worst impulses trying to tempt you into behaving badly. The laziness lie encourages you to ignore your body's warnings, push through discomfort, and ask for as few accommodations as possible. And at the end of all that struggle and self-denial, there's no reward. You never actually earn the right to take it easy because the laziness lie also teaches you that you can never, ever do enough. There is always more you could be doing. The laziness lie encourages us to aspire to an impossible level of productivity. It sets us up to expect full eight-hour workdays of unbroken focus, followed by evenings filled with exercise, Instagram-worthy home-cooked meals, and admirable side projects. According to the laziness lie, a worthwhile person fills their days in ideal, industrious ways. They don't skip doctor's appointments, fail to get their oil checked, or miss days at the gym. If someone lacks the energy to make it to the polls on election day because they just finished working a grueling third shift job, the laziness lie says they're to blame for everything going politically awry in this country. When a part-time student doesn't have the mental energy to study after caring for her children all day, the laziness lie says she isn't smart enough or virtuous enough to get a college degree. There's no limit to what the laziness lie will do to persuade us that we need to be doing. Our aspirations can climb and climb, but they'll never hit the ceiling because the ceiling doesn't exist. If you're a diligent employee, the laziness lie will berate you for not volunteering more often or for not doing enough for your family and friends. If you devote your life to serving other people and meeting their needs, the laziness lie will point out that you're not working out enough or that your home is a mess. If you win a massive award or hit some other life-changing milestone, the laziness lie will smile politely and say, that's very nice, but what do you plan to do next? We are all taught to take immense pride in our achievements, but we're also discouraged from resting on our laurels when we do accomplish something great. No level of success grants a person the social permission to stop and catch their breath. We're forever left wondering, what's next? What else? The laziness lie teaches that the harder you work, the better a person you are. But it never actually defines what an acceptable level of hard might look like. By forever moving the goalpost and never actually allowing a person to be vulnerable and have needs, it's setting us up for failure right from the start. This past year, my mom suffered a hip injury that would not heal. Instead of resting and attending physical therapy, she kept aggravating the injury by standing all day long at her job as a dental hygienist. She kept dragging herself to work for weeks, which became months, even though it was clear her body couldn't sustain it. It got harder for my mom to walk or stand, and she was starting to dread going into the office. Still, she kept putting off retirement. She'd been a dental hygienist for over 40 years, she kept reiterating to me. It was who she was, the only job she'd ever done as an adult. So the inevitable kept getting delayed, until my mom's pain got so intense that she had no choice but to call in sick for every shift she had on the schedule. Instead of being the planned, scheduled affair she wanted it to be, my mom's retirement became an emergency decision, a 
announced to her co-workers via text message. The laziness lie kept my mom from admitting to herself that it was time to stop working. It keeps many of us from taking the time we need to recoup. Or from spending our younger, typically healthier years doing things we genuinely love. So many of my friends and loved ones are hurting themselves in similar ways, leaving their health, relationships, and years of their lives as offerings at the altar of hard work. This is what the laziness lie has done to us. It has made us terrified of living at a slower, gentler pace. This understanding of the world has left many of us constitutionally incapable of caring for ourselves, let alone extending full compassion to others. What's worse, the laziness lie is so deeply ingrained in our culture and our values that many of us never think to question it. To fully appreciate its far-reaching impact and how it became so integral to our culture, we have to look back centuries into the origins of capitalism. Where does the laziness lie come from? The laziness lie is deeply embedded in the very foundation of the United States. The value of hard work and the evils of sloth are baked into our national myths and our shared value system. Thanks to the legacies of imperialism and slavery, as well as the ongoing influence that the United States exerts on its trade partners, the laziness lie has managed to spread its tendrils into almost every country and culture on the planet. The word lazy first appeared in English around 1540. Even back then, it was used in a judgmental way to mean someone who disliked work or effort. Many etymologists believe it came from either the Middle Low German lasich, which meant feeble or weak, or from the Old English lasu which meant false or evil. These two origins illustrate the odd doublespeak at work whenever we call someone lazy. When we say someone is lazy, we're saying they're incapable of completing a task due to physical or mental weakness. But we're also claiming that their lack of ability somehow makes them morally corrupt. It's not that they're tired or even dispirited in some way we might sympathize with. The word implies that they're failures on a fundamental human level. The idea that lazy people are evil fakers who deserve to suffer has been embedded in the word since the very start. One of the major factors that caused the laziness lie to spread throughout the United States was the arrival of the Puritans. The Puritans had long believed that if a person was a hard worker, it was a sign that God had chosen them for salvation. Hard work was believed to improve who you were as a person. Conversely, if a person couldn't focus on the task at hand or couldn't self-motivate, that was a sign that they had already been damned. This meant, of course, that there was no need to feel sympathy for people who struggled or failed to meet their responsibilities. By lacking the drive to succeed, they were displaying to the world that God hadn't chosen them for heaven. When the Puritans came to colonial America, their ideas caught on and spread to other less pious colonists. For many reasons, a belief system that judged and punished the lazy was about to become very popular and politically useful. Colonial America relied on the labor of enslaved people and indentured servants. It was very important to the colony's wealthy and enslaving class that they find a way to motivate enslaved people to work hard, despite the fact that enslaved people had nothing to gain from it. One powerful way to do so was through religious teachings and indoctrination. 
a productivity-obsessed form of Christianity, evolved from the older, more puritanical idea that work improved moral character, and it was pushed on enslaved people. This form of Christianity taught that suffering was morally righteous and that slaves would be rewarded in heaven for being docile, agreeable, and most important, diligent. On the flip side, if an enslaved person was slothful or lazy, there was something fundamentally corrupt and wrong with them. Enslavers made it a point to keep enslaved people as busy and exhausted as possible out of fear that idle time would give them the means to revolt or riot. Even more disturbing, enslaved people who tried to run away from bondage were seen as mentally ill and suffering from runaway slave disorder. By not accepting their proper role in society, they were demonstrating that they were broken and disturbed. This worldview became the foundation for American capitalism. The laziness lie had been born. It would quickly spread to other marginalized people, including indentured servants, poor white laborers, and Native Americans who had been forced into government boarding schools. These exploited groups were also taught that working hard without complaint was virtuous, and that desiring free time was morally suspect. As the Industrial Revolution changed the landscape of the country, with more and more Americans working long hours in manufacturing plants, the laziness lie was pushed even more. The wealthy and highly educated began to claim that poor whites also couldn't be trusted with idle time. In fact, too many breaks could make a person antisocial. Propaganda from that time often claimed that if the working poor weren't kept busy, they would resort to crime and drug use, and society would run amok. Laziness had officially become not only a personal failing, but a social ill to be defeated, and it has remained that way ever since. We can see the dogma of the laziness lie in popular media from that period as well. In the late 1800s, the writer Horatio Alger published numerous stories in which struggling, impoverished characters were able to rise into the upper classes through hard work. The popularity of these books led to the idea that poor people simply needed to pull themselves up by their bootstraps if they wanted to live a comfortable life. In the 1950s and beyond, evangelical preachers promoted a similar idea with the prosperity doctrine, which claimed that if a person devoted their life to serving Jesus, they would be rewarded with bountiful job opportunities, wealth, and success. In the decades that followed, the laziness lie found its way into countless films, plays, and TV shows, from the national myths of Paul Bunyan and Johnny Appleseed, to the strong, independent cowboys on the silver screen, to the memoirs of entrepreneurs like Conrad Hilton, one of the most prevalent legends in American culture, became the tale of the single-minded, hard-working man who had created his own success and changed society through sheer force of will. In these stories, the hero is always a strong white man who doesn't need the support of anyone else. He's usually a bit of a social island, with no close connections to other people and a disregard for society's rules in general. In every way, he's the picture of independence, and it's through his strong personality and doggedness that he succeeds. These myths, though inspiring and appealing to many, carried with them a dark implication. If a person didn't succeed, it was because they weren't doing enough. For people who believe in the laziness lie, things like economic reform, legal protections for workers, and welfare programs seem unnecessary. Those who want to succeed just need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, after all. Research from the past three decades consistently shows that a majority of Americans do, in fact, think this way. 
For many of us, our first instinct is generally to blame a person for their own misfortune, especially if we can pin that misfortune on laziness. Research also shows that when we believe the world is fair and people get what they deserve, we're less likely to support social welfare programs and have less sympathy for poor people and their needs. Much like the parents I've seen discouraging their children from giving money to homeless people, many Americans believe that generosity, compassion, and mutual aid is wasted on the lazy. Furthermore, if we believe the world was created solely by independent people, we may come to think that there's no need for us to be interdependent and compassionate. We may even come to see relying on other people as a threat to progress. Decades of exposure to the laziness lie has had a massive effect on our public consciousness. It's made many of us critical of other people and quick to blame the victims of economic inequality for their own deprivation. It's made us hate our own limitations, to see our tiredness or desire for a break as signs of failure. And it has created an intense internal pressure to keep working harder and harder with no limits and no boundaries. The rise of social media and digital work tools has only made these pressures harder to escape. The laziness lie is everywhere. Much like the Horatio Alger novels of the past, today's popular media still teaches us to worship hard work and look down on the lazy. From the films we watch to the YouTube videos that keep us company on our lunch breaks, we're inundated with stories that praise diligence and individualism. Some of today's most popular celebrities promote the idea of themselves as self-made entrepreneurs, rather than extremely privileged and fortunate tycoons. Our fictional heroes overcome evil and accomplish their dreams because they possess unique levels of drive and dedication, not because they support and are supported by other people. Conversely, characters who face limitations and personal challenges, such as physical disabilities or mental illness, are almost always portrayed as villains or comical side characters deserving of pity but not respect. John Wick has become an iconic action film character because he defeats throngs of enemies almost entirely on his own, and he's never able to settle into the retirement he keeps promising himself. Many stories about assassins, spies, and super soldiers follow a similar trajectory, portraying the lives of steely, serious men who just can't seem to give up their jobs, no matter how horrific they are and how much they brutalize them. From Blade Runner to The Usual Suspects to Inception, some of America's most classic and iconic action films feature characters who, like Wick, keep putting off retirement for the sake of pursuing one last job. That last job never actually ends up being the last one, of course. There's always a sequel, featuring new opportunities with even higher stakes. In Avengers Endgame, Thor is made a laughingstock because he responds to an intergalactic disaster by becoming withdrawn, alcoholic, and lazy. The film also puts the actor in a fat suit, using his fatness to both indicate and mock how much worse his life has become. In the narrative of the film, it doesn't matter that Thor has lost dozens of friends and watched an unimaginable disaster ripple throughout the universe. That's not enough of an excuse for him to descend into a non-productive, suffering state. A perfectly normal reaction to trauma and grief is rendered mockable and pathetic, and countless fat viewers end up insulted and dehumanized in the process, as do viewers with depression or addiction issues. This obsession with the strong individualist character has permeated our culture for decades. Films like The Matrix, Star Wars, 
and the Harry Potter series all emphasize the importance of their lead characters being chosen ones, who must sacrifice everything in order to defeat evil. These characters may have support networks and sidekicks who help them through the story, but when the final moment of triumph comes, they've almost always had to suffer and struggle alone to earn it. They're told they possess a unique ability no one else has, and they have no choice but to use that ability to save the world. This teaches viewers that our skills and talents don't really belong to us. They exist to be used. If we don't gladly give our time, our talents, and even our lives to others, we aren't heroic or good. Many of the most popular children's TV shows at the moment, such as Dragon Ball Super and My Hero Academia, also focus on relentlessly hardworking people who exert themselves to the point of injury or pain. I used to watch an earlier version of Dragon Ball as a kid, and I identified with the characters who pushed themselves nearly to death for the sake of winning battles. Young children were regularly depicted as sustaining bloody, painful injuries on that show, yet they always continued to fight. At the time, I admired their dedication and wanted to be tough, just like them. As an adult, I'm pretty horrified by the violence and outright child abuse that's being celebrated on shows like those as hard work. Even more morally complex, modern children's shows like Steven Universe and Avatar The Last Airbender still teach children that it's up to a singularly motivated individual to save the world. If that person has to sacrifice everything in order to do their job, so be it. In reality, of course, fighting for change is a much more gradual, collaborative process. Instagram influencers and popular YouTubers are also major peddlers of the laziness lie. YouTube videos by major influencers like Jeffree Star and Shane Dawson are filled with talk about how hard the creators are working and how much they've sacrificed to earn their success. Their obscene levels of wealth are always attributed to their effort, not good luck. Kim Kardashian and Kylie Jenner have spent years and multiple TV shows portraying themselves as entrepreneurs, attributing their massive wealth and fame to the fact that they never stop hustling and looking for new opportunities. When the Instagram influencer, model, and comedian Ricky Thompson became famous enough to sell merchandise, around the time he hit 4 million followers, the first item he revealed was a t-shirt with his catchphrase, booked and busy, printed on the front. These massively popular figures cannot stop hammering home the importance of remaining busy. It's the constant narrative theme in their lives and work. Video game and comedy YouTubers often dabble in the same themes, talking about how devoted they are to their fans and how much time they're putting into each project. Some streamers regularly fall asleep on camera because their devotion to constantly generating content runs that deep. Some performers stay on camera for more than 24 hours at a time. In one infamous case, a streamer died on camera due to sleep deprivation and physical exhaustion. He had been streaming for 22 hours straight at the time of his death. In some ways, it can be positive for children and other viewers to hear from self-made successes on a regular basis. Social media has democratized who gets to be famous and successful, to an extent. Sometimes, black, queer, 20-somethings like Ricky Thompson genuinely do ascend to fame and wealth because they produce excellent videos and work very hard. 
Yet for every Ricky Thompson, there's a Jeffree Star, a massively successful YouTuber and makeup magnet who lives in an opulent mansion while his employees toil away in his warehouses, making the products that earned him his wealth. When massively successful stars attribute their good fortunes entirely to how diligently they've worked, they set people up to have unrealistic expectations about the odds of success and how wealth is actually meted out in this country. This is especially troublesome when the work habits being promoted are excessive and dangerous. Our media has a selection bias built into it. We rarely get to hear from the people who worked equally hard but failed or lost everything because of it. The musical comedian Bo Burnham, whose career started on YouTube, describes this phenomenon very well. Don't take advice from guys like me who've gotten very lucky. Taylor Swift telling you to follow your dreams is like a lottery winner saying, liquidize your assets, buy Powerball tickets, it works. Our media rarely shows people setting limits, asking for help, or devoting their lives to the things that make them feel happy and safe. Of course, it's much harder to tell a story about a happy person with a fulfilling, healthy life than it is to show violence, toil, and struggle. Strong, independent heroes are captivating to so many of us because we long to have the power and dedication they possess. As much as I'm troubled by the themes in many of these stories, I still get a rush from watching John Wick murder throngs of enemies with only a library book and sheer force of will. Still, there's a real social cost to the fact that we're taught time and time again that we should never give up or ask for help when there are many times that a person needs and deserves a break. It's not just popular media that teaches us to work relentlessly without stopping. The laziness lie is also promoted in our schools. Our modern-day educational system was formulated during the Industrial Revolution and was designed to train students for employment in warehouses and manufacturing plants. Today, the structure of the school day remains remarkably similar to the structure of the average workday. There are rigid schedules and arbitrary deadlines that don't take into account what else is going on in a student's life. Absences or changes in the routine can get a child in trouble. Children who struggle to focus or sit still for eight hours are treated as problems to be minimized. Students who aren't naturally gifted in a subject are given less attention and support. So are kids who don't fit the stereotype of what a talented student looks like because of their gender, race, or socioeconomic status. Some people thrive in the standard academic environment. Those of us who have an easy time sitting still and following directions can flourish, receiving praise and encouragement every step of the way. However, a large number of young people are instead given the message that they're not good enough, don't work hard enough, and are destined for failure. At Loyola University Chicago, the students I teach are working adults, many of them enrolled in college as 18- or 19-year-olds, but then something got in the way of their graduating on time. They got pregnant, fell ill, or had to quit school to take care of a dying parent. Sometimes they just couldn't focus on school or didn't see the point in it. Unfortunately, many of my students absorbed the idea that they're to blame for the challenges they faced. Many think they were just too lazy to finish school the first time around. A few years ago, I was approached after class by an adult student named Mora. She had a couple of facial piercings and dyed hair, just like me. She had just gotten a new tattoo and wanted to show it to me. 
We talked for a bit about piercing and tattoos and concerts we'd been to. She and I had a ton in common. Then she asked me how old I was. It turned out we were the same age. As soon as Mora realized this, she immediately started berating herself for having not done much with her life compared to me. She did it in a joking way, but I could tell it was coming from a place of genuine insecurity. I do a similar thing when I discover a successful person who's younger than me, because I've been taught to constantly measure my accomplishments and see how they stack up against somebody else's. I feel threatened when a person seems to be ahead of me, yet I don't tend to evaluate other people's lives in that way. I started asking Mora about what she'd been doing throughout her 20s. I learned that she'd managed a large retail store for several years while taking classes part-time and raising a child. She also had several roommates, all of whom were younger than her, and often found herself falling into the mom role for them. She had to drive them to work when their cars broke down and look after them when they got sick. On top of all that, Mora's ex-husband was in the military, and for years, Mora had traveled with him, unable to find a job on the bases where they lived. Mora had clearly lived a rich, responsibility-filled life. Her 20s had been much more interesting and challenging than my own, yet she believed she'd done nothing with all that time. She was a more mature, well-rounded person than I was. I tried to tell her as much, but I'm not sure she believed me. After all, she'd been told by many professors at that point that she wasn't applying herself or trying hard enough. At the same time she was taking my class, Mora was failing another course because her professor wouldn't let her retake an exam she'd missed because of an emergency at her job. Like so many of my adult students, Mora seemed sleep-deprived and checked out from time to time. But from speaking with her, I realized it was because she had so much on her plate. It's easy for a teacher to mistake exhaustion for apathy or lack of motivation, yet I almost always find that when I sit down with students who seem unmotivated, they're impressively productive people who fill their days with full-time jobs, self-improvement, and service to others. Despite all of this, many of my most dedicated students believe they're lazy. Often it's because some teacher in their past berated them for circumstances beyond their control. The laziness lie has also followed us into our homes and private moments. Digital technology and social media fill our spare time with emails from coworkers, stressful notifications about appointments we've forgotten, and guilt-ridden messages about what our bodies, homes, and lives ought to look like. Digital work tools have made it possible for many of us to work from home, but rather than making our lives easier, this has created the pressure to be constantly available to our employers. We get our news from phone apps and social media sites rather than printed papers, making it harder than ever to get away from upsetting images and distressing information. Even the online spaces that are supposed to bring us pleasure and entertainment, such as Instagram and TikTok, guilt us with advertisements for weight loss products, intricate home improvement projects, and complicated beauty regimens. Everywhere we turn, we're told we're not enough. And when we finally disconnect from this constant stream of shame and pressure, we often feel guilty for disappearing on our colleagues, family, and friends. Why you feel lazy When I tell someone I don't believe laziness exists, a funny thing usually happens. The person will almost always try to argue with me about how lazy and terrible they are. They'll admit to me that yes, of course, other people who are judged for being lazy are actually very hardworking, 
And yes, a lot of the time, seemingly non-productive people are dealing with tons of legitimate barriers and challenges, but they insist to me, they're nothing like those people. They're just lazy because there's something deeply wrong with them. They're somehow lazier and more awful than anyone in the world. I've talked to dozens of really accomplished, driven people who remain absolutely convinced that they're uniquely, shamefully lazy. The first time I had this type of conversation, I was hanging out with an artist friend, Michael Roy, who does street art and murals under the moniker Birdcap. Michael travels the world covering interior and exterior walls with complex, brightly colored designs that combine ancient mythological figures with nostalgic images from his youth. He's become a successful artist because of his talent and dedication. But when we were hanging out back in 2015, he told me he was horrifically lazy. I had asked Michael how he had the energy to constantly travel the world, doing murals, applying for artistic grants, and producing digital art for freelancing clients all at the same time. He shrugged at me and said that he had to push himself like this, because if he didn't, he'd descend into laziness and never make another piece of art ever again. In his mind, being productive seemed somewhat binary. Either he was grinding away constantly, painting murals by day and drawing on his tablet at night, or he was a total sloth with no creative drive and no professional prospects. At that point in his life, Michael didn't have a house or an apartment. He traveled so often that it didn't make sense for him to. He slept on couches or in hostels and lugged a backpack full of spray paint cans with him wherever he went. He didn't have health insurance. He spent full days outside sweating under the hot sun on a ladder, coating walls with primer and decorating them with elaborate designs. Yet he believed he was on the brink of succumbing to laziness. Michael is not a uniquely lazy person. He's an especially busy person. But like so many of us, he feels an intense pressure to keep pushing himself forward. The lazy feeling he hated and feared was probably a sign he was tired and nearly burned out. But he had no way of realizing that because everyone around him was singing the praises of hard work, dedication, and showing no weakness. The world of visual art is competitive and sometimes cutthroat. The people who do succeed have to be constantly active, not only producing new work, but also building their online platforms and brands. Every day, Michael sees his colleagues promoting their successes on social media and in interviews. As he goes about painting, applying for grants, and taking on new clients, he also has to worry about gaining new Instagram followers and doing interviews himself. A professional world like Michael's creates an arms race of busyness with each person vying for a limited number of opportunities and social media eyeballs. Each artist has to snatch up as many jobs as they can get, because they have no way of knowing what the future will hold. At the same time, they have to build a public reputation for themselves as relevant and cool. Since every person is broadcasting an image of themselves as successful, dedicated, and popular, it can be hard to keep track of where you fall in the hierarchy. And because of all this, it's dangerously easy to feel like no matter how overwhelmed you are, someone out there is doing 10 times as much as you are. A lot of people feel the way Michael does, forever burning the midnight oil while fearing that they're on the verge of ruining it all by taking a break. We live in an economically uncertain time, with many industries being disrupted or automated. Freelance jobs and gig work have replaced reliable full-time employment for many people creating an environment of uncertainty and competition. 
Digital tools like email and Slack have eroded the boundary between home and the office, making it difficult to ever truly take time off. Meanwhile, social media reminds us constantly of what other people are doing and accomplishing, making us all feel like failures who just can't keep up. It's a strange paradox, but when we set out to do more than is good for us, we end up feeling like we're not doing anything at all. If there are always more items on your to-do list than you can possibly check off, you will never feel accomplished. If your boss is constantly emailing you with questions and requests, you can start to feel guilty for something as simple as turning off your phone to go to sleep at night. When exercise, activism, and even talking with friends is tracked and measured by phone apps, you may start feeling like you're constantly letting people down. We feel lazy, but it's not because we're awful, apathetic people. It's because we're exhausted. Does looking at your calendar fill you with dread? Do you have a deadline that you keep pushing back because confronting it head-on seems impossible? Do you waste hours every day scrolling through Twitter or shopping online for things you don't need? If so, you might be feeling very lazy right now, and that might actually be a good thing. When we feel unfocused, tired, and lazy, it's often because we desperately need some time to rest our bodies and brains. Research has repeatedly shown that a person on the verge of burnout will have trouble staying focused and productive. No amount of pressure and stress can magically help a person overcome that lack of focus and motivation. The solution is to cut way back on expectations for a while. Overextended people have to find space in their lives to sleep, power down their stressed-out minds, and recharge their mental and emotional batteries. You can wait until you reach a breaking point like Max and I did, or you can prevent illness and burnout by being gentle with yourself before it's too late. The laziness lie has tried to convince us that our desires for rest and relaxation make us terrible people. It's made us believe that having no motivation is shameful and must be avoided at all costs. In reality, our feelings of tiredness and idleness can help save us by signaling to us that we're desperately in need of some downtime. When we stop fearing laziness, we can find time to reflect and recharge, to reconnect with the people and hobbies that we love, and to move through the world at a more intentional, peaceful pace. Wasting time is a basic human need. Once we accept that, we can stop fearing our inner laziness and begin to build healthy, happy, well-balanced lives. Chapter 2. Rethinking Laziness When I met Julie, she was the executive director of a nonprofit here in Chicago. Her organization provided creative writing classes to Chicago public school students, particularly those in underfunded, understaffed schools in the city's south and west side neighborhoods. Kids love having classroom visits from Julie's organization. The teachers are actors, writers, and performers and a large percentage of them are Black and Latinx, like the children they're teaching. The nonprofit's main goal is to help kids flourish creatively as writers. Each year, hundreds of children go through the program and learn to write short stories, dialogues, and persuasive essays on whatever topics they like. In her years as executive director, Julie wrote tons of grant applications, found ways to save the organization money without cutting staff or essentials, 
and built a sizable financial nest egg for the company to fall back on for years to come. She put together professional development events that her staff actually enjoyed. She supported employees when they struggled through personal issues and medical emergencies. When Chicago public schools faced budget cuts and school closings, Julie was at the protests and teacher strikes, fighting to protect educational access for the kids who needed it most. She did all of this time-consuming, badass work while raising an infant daughter and coping with an anxiety disorder. At that time in her life, Julie was a total productivity powerhouse. She worked hard, she fought for causes she believed in, she parented her kid, and she managed her employees with compassion and flexibility. In other words, she was winning the game the laziness lie has taught us we have to play. She was having it all. Then one evening, the night after her daughter turned a year old, Julie came home and her husband, Rich, said he didn't love her anymore. Julie's life was about to completely fall apart. The next couple of years would be defined by marital therapy, doctors and psychiatrists' appointments, a move to a new state, lots of yoga, and the quitting of several jobs. Everything about how Julie set her priorities was about to drastically change. Her long journey toward embracing a slower, lazier life was about to begin. Rich became increasingly erratic and self-destructive in the months after he told Julie he no longer loved her. He started an emotional affair with a woman who worked at Julie's nonprofit. He was visibly depressed and started talking about suicide. Instead of contemplating leaving the marriage, Julie chose to support Rich and help figure out what had caused his behavior to change so dramatically. She had a gut feeling that his actions were not a deliberate, malicious choice. I was going crazy, Julie says, because I was like, this is not my husband. This is not the person I've known for so long, and we've been together since I was 20, so we know each other pretty well. After several psychiatrists' appointments, they discovered Julie was right. It turned out that Rich had bipolar disorder. His symptoms were exacerbated by the stress of balancing parenting with a full-time job that required him to travel often. For years, Rich had been privately trying to manage his symptoms without even realizing it. But as the stress in his life continued to mount, his ability to cope got worse and worse. Suddenly, Julie had to scramble to not only repair her marriage, but also keep her husband functioning and alive. One evening, Rich was having a particularly severe mental breakdown, so Julie took him to the hospital. She also called a mental health crisis line for help. To her surprise, the crisis line operator wanted to talk to Julie about how she was doing and what steps she was taking to care for herself during such an immensely stressful and traumatic time. Julie realized that she didn't have good answers to those questions. She hadn't had time to think about her well-being at all. At that point, Julie says, I was like, we can't keep doing this. We can't both be doing full-time jobs, and I'm under all this stress, and I have to take care of the kid and my husband and this company and everybody in the company. This just isn't sustainable. Julie realized she and her husband had to shift their priorities. They were too busy, 
too stressed and too overextended to care for their daughter and maintain their own functionality and mental health at the same time. So Julie created a plan. She realized that since Rich's job could be done from anywhere in the Midwest, not just Chicago, it made sense for them to move somewhere cheaper to live. In a more affordable town, Julie could stay home and be the primary parent for their daughter, freeing up time for Rich to rest and look after his mental health. And because they'd be living in a suburb rather than a loud, busy, crowded city, Julie would have more space in her life for self-care, too. Rich agreed to give the plan a shot. Julie resigned from her position at the nonprofit, they sold their house, and used the money to provide a financial cushion for the move. They found a comfortable, affordable home in Wisconsin and relocated. My story just reeks of privilege, Julie says. We were really lucky with real estate. We knew that we were going to be able to sell our house for a lot. Julie describes herself as a stay-at-home mom now, though she does run multiple small businesses out of that home. She's started three different small companies in the four years she's been working in Wisconsin, in fact. Her drive to work incredibly hard hasn't left her. Still, she says her life now has room in it for her to breathe. I have emotional space for other people and for myself now, she says, and I'm much kinder and nicer. In Chicago, all I had the emotional capacity for was getting to work, picking up my kid, driving across town in traffic to drop her off, where she had to go, worrying about parking. I had these blinders on. Nowadays, Julie sets firm limits on how much work she does and how much anxiety her family is exposed to. She knows the alternative is disastrous. Recently, she took a part-time job teaching at a dance studio. Some interpersonal drama was erupting between other teachers there, and Julie could tell the tension was taking a toll on her well-being. The dance world can also be full of sexism and fat-shaming, and Julie didn't want to expose herself or her daughter to it. So she walked away from the job, even though she had just started working there. Saying no so firmly and so quickly would have been a massive struggle for her a few years ago. Julie's had a taste of what it's like to set her own schedule and rule her life according to her own priorities, and that has changed everything. Now she can walk away when things aren't working for her. This is totally a cliche, she says. But I do yoga, and every time I'm in a balance pose, I think about how much work balance is. It's constant attention, and you have to keep shifting to find it. Julie and Rich have attained a healthy balance in their marriage, too. They've been incredibly honest and candid with all their friends and family about the struggles they've experienced, and have learned how to ask for help when they need it. Their communication has also opened up in fantastic ways. The other evening, I was feeling anxious, and Rich was feeling anxious. We were doing things around the house, and I just said to him, I think we're about to get into a fight, Julie tells me. I could feel this tension building up between us, and I thought, what if I just acknowledged that out loud? As soon as Julie observed the anger building up, she and Rich were able to defuse it. Rich was like, I don't want to fight, Julie says, and I told him, I don't want to fight either. It was scary to name this thing I wanted to run away from, but then we were able to deal with it. Whenever I talk to Julie and Rich, I can't help but notice how comfortable, candid, 
and downright silly they are with each other. There's a relaxed honesty between them that I've seen in only a handful of couples in my life. Together, they were able to take a relationship that was in tatters and rebuild it into something far more vulnerable and enduring. That never would have been possible when they were both overworked. I think some people might look at Julie's story and see a woman running away or giving up. Julie mentioned that her own mother has a hard time understanding the changes she's made in her life. One way that Julie marked those changes was by getting the word surrender tattooed on her upper arm. And her mom found that totally baffling. I got a lot of shit from my mom for that tattoo, Julie says. She was like, surrender, that's such a weak word. But Julie's new tattoo and new life reflect her newfound understanding that she cannot control everything. She can't work a full-time job, parent a child, and navigate an evolving relationship with her husband while also maintaining her own well-being and health. She can't prioritize everyone else's needs above her own. If she wants to thrive, she has to give some things up. She's learned not to feel guilt over every opportunity she walks away from or every obligation she says no to. That is an incredibly difficult lesson to learn. In a world that equates laziness with evil, saying no is often deemed unacceptable. Our culture looks down on people who quit things. Rather than encouraging their good judgment and self-respect, we perceive them as weak-willed or dishonest. When a person juggles dozens and dozens of responsibilities, we laud them for having it all. But what happens if they decide they don't want it all? Or that the constant juggling isn't worth it? Can we actually respect a person who revokes their consent? Can we see a person as impressive for admitting that they no longer want to carry something they've been shouldering for too long? Many of us never learned how to surrender, even when we desperately need to. We've been browbeaten into saying yes for so long that we don't know what a confident no feels like. We so often see laziness as an indulgence we never truly deserve. In a world that's beholden to the laziness lie, many of us feel we have to hide our desire for free time. I know that when I cancel plans, I try to find a really plausible, virtuous-seeming excuse. Sorry I couldn't make it to game night. I had to stay late at work. The truth? I just didn't feel like going. Seems unacceptable to voice. Admitting I want to sit around and do nothing would make me look lazy. It would tell everyone I was weak. But what if all of that is totally wrong? It seems to me that being upfront about your limits and needs is a sign of strength, not weakness. Cutting back on obligations doesn't mean you're hurting or disappointing other people either. Openly and proudly saying, no, I don't feel like doing that, can help free others to do the same in their own lives. Many of the lazy behaviors we've been told to avoid, like the plague, are actually very mature, responsible choices. In chapter one, I discussed where the laziness lie came from and the ways in which the lie sets us up for failure and exhaustion. In this chapter, I want to take that argument even further and explore how resting, quitting things, cutting corners, and all the other actions we typically write off as laziness can actually help us heal and grow.
A great deal of research actually supports the notion that our lazy feelings are protective and instructive, and that our lives can improve a great deal when we decide to stop judging our desire for idle, lazy time and start trusting those feelings instead. Laziness is not evil. I got into a fight with a college freshman on Twitter recently. Well, not a fight, just a long, tense discussion. He was outraged by my belief that laziness is not the evil, inexplicable thing we've all been taught to view it as. In an essay I posted online a few years ago, I said that seemingly lazy people almost always have a sensible reason for why they lack energy or drive. If you understand what a person is going through, even their most self-defeating, lazy behavior can start to make sense. But this young man, let's call him James, thought I was overlooking several types of laziness that were objectively senseless and wrong. Like many people, James seemed convinced that his own inaction and laziness were far worse than most other people's. He mentioned that his laziness came from having depression, but insisted that mental illness wasn't a valid excuse for his bad behavior. James told me that sometimes whole days would pass before he'd muster the energy to leave his room. Wasn't that clearly unacceptable behavior, he wanted to know. Wasn't that kind of laziness terrible no matter its cause? James also told me that in high school, some of his friends prided themselves on their laziness. He said he and his friends procrastinated on purpose to stick it to their school. One student in particular became infamous for writing entire papers in the hour before class started. Surely someone who does that is inexcusably lazy, right? Finally, James told me that at college, he'd met some people who were truly apathetic about doing well in life. They seemed to have no good reason for failing to work hard. He wanted to know how my belief system accounted for people who didn't seem to be facing any personal challenges and failed to get things done because they simply didn't care. James's questions touched on three types of people who tend to get pigeonholed as lazy in our society. Depressed people, procrastinators, and apathetic people who don't see the point in caring about work or school. Managers and professors look down on folks like these. Friends and family find their inaction confounding. Society as a whole tends to resent them for not contributing enough to the world. But in these three groups of people, you can find clear illustrations of exactly why a lack of motivation isn't a personal failing or the awful, morally negligent act the laziness lie wants us to believe that it is. Depressed People The first type of inexcusably lazy person James wanted to ask me about was people with depression. He mentioned right out of the gate that he had major depressive disorder. During a depressive episode, James said he looked deeply lazy to the outside world. Lazy might not be a pretty way to describe it, he tweeted to me, but it's accurate. In a depressive episode, all I do is sleep. I don't get anything done. When James is depressed, he doesn't have the energy to clean his room or do his homework. He misses classes, he sleeps all day. Wasn't he failing in all these areas of his life because he was lazy? More to the point, wasn't that laziness bad? 
this view of depression is disturbingly common. Despite all the work mental health activists have put into fighting the stigmatization of mental illness, negative and ignorant perceptions of the disorder remain prevalent. Many professors still believe, for example, that depression isn't a valid excuse for a student's lacking the energy to turn in assignments on time. When an employee divulges to their manager that they have depression, they're more likely to be punished for taking sick days than other employees are. Their odds of being fired go way up, too, even if the quality of their work remains the same. Parents of depressed children and teenagers often respond to their kids' symptoms by criticizing them rather than providing them with understanding or support. Because depression doesn't harm the body in a visible, obvious way, many people fail to understand why a depressed person lacks the energy to get things done. In a massive survey administered in 2018, over 30% of respondents agreed with a statement that depression is caused by having a weak personality. Our culture's propensity to judge and blame the lazy still runs very deep. It's no wonder that James had absorbed some of those ideas. So why are depressed people so lazy? The first thing to realize is that fighting depression is a full-time job. Depressed people sleep a lot because their brains get tired from fighting negative thoughts and feelings all day. Depressed people also have lower quality of sleep, meaning they get less energy from eight hours of rest than a non-depressed person does. When you're severely depressed, particularly if you're suicidal, sleep can be the only escape from misery you have. In a very real way, the apparent laziness of depressed people is a sign that their bodies and minds are protecting them and working to help them heal. Depression also saps the brain's ability to plan and execute activities, something that might seem simple to a non-depressed person, such as doing a load of laundry, can become an overwhelming series of painful tasks to someone who's depressed. It's hard to take a large job and break it down into small steps when your brain is struggling to function. A person's memory gets worse when they experience depression as does their ability to pay attention and filter information. It's not a moral failure for an exhausted person to let some responsibilities drop. In many cases, it's essential that they be lazy in a few areas of life if they want to have the energy to stay afloat in others. Procrastinators James wasn't really buying my argument at this point. He still felt pretty confident that being lazy wasn't at all understandable or okay. So he pivoted a bit and told me about how in high school, he and many of his friends prided themselves on their laziness and procrastination. We were self-proclaimed procrastinators and took it as a badge of honor, he tweeted. It was a counterculture against the strictness of our school. One friend would wait until an hour before class to start a project. Surely procrastination is an unacceptable form of laziness, right? Procrastinators lack focus and ambition, and their work is done in a half-assed, last-minute way. The evils of procrastination can easily be avoided if only the procrastinator would just work a little harder in advance, or at least that's what people tend to think. In reality, procrastination is a much more complex beast, one that's often caused by caring a whole lot and wanting to do well. When a person procrastinates, it's typically because 
they're paralyzed in some way, by anxiety, by confusion about how to get started on a big, complicated project, or both. I think most people have experienced both of these types of paralysis at one time or another. Imagine you see a job posting for a position that sounds amazing. It's truly your dream job, a rare opportunity. You want to get a wonderful, well-written application in on time so you can dazzle the hiring manager and beat out your competition. But try as you might, you find you can't make progress on it. You don't know what your cover letter should say. You know the application asks for references, but you don't know whom you ought to ask. You're afraid to even look at your resume because it's so out of date that it's embarrassing. Soon, just thinking about the job application causes you to feel nauseated and nervous, so you go play a video game instead to distract yourself from your anxious thoughts. Then you feel guilty for not working on the job application, which makes you anxious all over again, so you take a nap or go clean your kitchen. Before you know it, a week has passed and you haven't even looked at the job application. Maybe you hastily throw one together, hold your nose, and send it off at the last minute. Or maybe you give up entirely because you feel like you already blew your chance. Either way, you're left feeling like a lazy screw-up. Procrastinators often get caught in a cycle of perfectionism, anxiety, distraction, and failure. Because they care a great deal about doing well, they hold themselves to an impossibly high standard. They want to do perfect work. But their early attempts are far from perfect, so they get discouraged and anxious. As time passes and the deadline approaches, they become even more nervous and concerned about failure. That fear makes it even harder to focus and make progress. To cope with their feelings of anxiety, they distract themselves in any way they can. And then, when the deadline finally arrives, the procrastinator must choose between submitting quickly thrown together work that isn't very good or giving up entirely. James seemed to think that he and his friends procrastinated for no good reason. In his mind, they were being bad students just for the hell of it. However, if they're anything like most procrastinators, they had a whole host of sympathetic reasons to explain their behavior. Though they're frequently labeled as lazy, procrastinators don't lack motivation. In fact, they tend to care a lot about doing well. Research has repeatedly found that people procrastinate more when a task is one that really matters to them. Unfortunately, they lack the confidence and clarity to start plugging away at it in a productive way. The good news is that it's possible for a chronic procrastinator to break out of that cycle. With help and encouragement, a procrastinator can be taught to divide large responsibilities into small microtasks, each with their own very short-term deadlines. Something as big and vague as write a 10-page paper can be paralyzing, but write two paragraphs per day can be manageable. This, combined with treatment for their anxiety, can help procrastinators become far more productive, reliable, and confident in their abilities. Apathetic people. What about people who are truly unmotivated? People who put off tasks because they simply don't care. James mentioned that his friends put off homework in order to rebel against their overly strict school. This doesn't necessarily sound like a group of kids being lazy because of anxiety or depression or confusion about how to do well. For some of them, at least, it sounds like they truly didn't care. Isn't there something uniquely terrible about being that apathetic? 
Wasn't the laziness lie right to teach us that such people deserve our judgment? Believe it or not, I don't think so. When someone seems completely apathetic, I don't see them as a failure. Instead, I tend to think that they've been failed in some way. Let's take the ever-popular example of the kid who doesn't try hard in algebra class because he doesn't think he'll use algebra in real life. I used to feel the same way about math myself. I got a C in statistics when I was in college because the class was hard and boring, and I didn't take it seriously. It was too abstract and vague to seem relevant to my life. Nobody went to the trouble of explaining to me why the subject was important or how it would be relevant to my psychology major. Even within the class itself, this was never made clear. I continued to feel apathetic about statistics until I was trained as a researcher in graduate school. I quickly realized that I needed statistics to determine whether my experiments had worked. My career wasn't going to go anywhere if I didn't know how to analyze all the data I'd collected. So, I put the work in. Bit by bit, I started excelling at stats. Nowadays, I teach statistics classes with enthusiasm. I actually love the subject. And help organizations analyze their data in my work as a statistical consultant. But I got to this place only because I finally saw why this dull, difficult subject mattered in my own life. Now, whenever I teach statistics... I work hard to help my students see why the subject deserves their attention and time. I demonstrate to them why it ought to be one of their priorities. When I've done my job well, they get it and put in the effort. So when I see that somebody doesn't care about a particular goal, whether it's becoming financially independent, finishing a degree, or even voting, I find myself wondering, why does this activity seem pointless to them? According to James, he and his peers didn't take classwork seriously because their school was overly strict. That makes complete sense to me. When you feel stuck in a controlling environment where nobody treats you with trust, you are naturally going to want to rebel against it. Of course, it's hard for a teenager to self-motivate when they've had adults telling them what to do and how to do it all their lives. If James's school had given him and his peers more freedom and agency, they might have risen to the challenge instead of checking out. Sometimes people become apathetic because of depression or trauma. Other times, people turn to apathy after repeatedly being disenfranchised. Psychologists call this learned helplessness, and we see it in victims of abuse, people who have been incarcerated, and families that have experienced generations of poverty and racism. When you lose power over your own life, you don't have much reason to stay energized and motivated. So you protect yourself emotionally by checking out and giving up. In workplaces with ineffective or incompetent managers, for example, employees become apathetic because they know their hard work will go unnoticed and unappreciated. We also see this in the low voter turnout rate in the United States. A majority of non-voters are people of color and people living in poverty who report that they do not feel their interests are being represented by the political options available to them. Pulling back one's effort level in such situations is perfectly rational. It may not be pretty, but it's not a personal failing either. In so many cases, 
what we call laziness is actually a person coping with a ton of challenges and attempting to set priorities based on their needs. When a person is pushed to their limit, supposedly lazy feelings and behaviors tend to pop up. Apathy, low motivation, an inability to focus, a desire to waste time doing nothing, these are all valuable warning signs. They can teach us a great deal about our limits and needs. However, in order to benefit from this highly evolved dynamic warning system, we have to learn to stop writing it off as inexcusable laziness. Laziness is a warning. Scientific research on topics such as productivity and burnout have taught us that there are limits to how much work a person can do. Those limits are more extreme than you might realize. For example, the 40-hour workweek, which is considered quite reasonable and humane here in the U.S., is still probably too long and demanding for most people. We are not machines. Our bodies and minds aren't set up to perform repetitive, or mentally taxing work for eight or more hours per day. Still, many of us push through those limitations, forcing ourselves to work harder and for longer than is truly healthy for us. The laziness lie has set us up to expect more productivity out of ourselves than is really feasible or sustainable. As a result, many of us live continuously on the edge of breaking down. For some, that breaking point is dramatic. Julie had to experience mental and physical collapse in order to learn the importance of good work-life boundaries. So did Max. I had to battle illness for months before I finally learned to let myself relax. But it doesn't have to be that way. Our bodies and brains have subtle, gradual signals that tell us to pump the brakes and prioritize our health over our productivity. Unfortunately, the laziness lie has convinced us that those signals must be ignored as much as possible. Leo has an uncanny ability to set himself up for frustration and burnout. He's an expert at taking on more responsibilities than seems remotely tenable, and then having to face the drastic consequences of spreading himself too thin. He's just now coming to understand his own limits and learning to listen to his internal laziness signals instead of brushing them away. But that process has been long, painful, and full of bumps. Today, Leo is 30, but he's been an overachiever and a workaholic since I met him in college. As a student, Leo was ambitious, intelligent, and politically engaged, always organizing fundraisers for politicians and volunteering for local and state-level campaigns. He was involved in an endless list of extracurriculars, from the Campus Atheist Club to the Campus Chapter of College Democrats of America. He cared about every conceivable political issue and took it upon himself to fight for his values in every way he could. He traveled the Midwest to aid in get-out-the-vote efforts, registering voters and educating them on the issues. Back at school, he enrolled in the maximum number of classes our college allowed him to take. A few weeks into every semester, he would inevitably fall apart, dropping multiple classes, missing a variety of deadlines, and failing to attend some of the on-campus events he'd so carefully worked to put together. Leo was often burned out and terribly depressed, but he never wanted to talk about it. I'd spend days in my bedroom too ashamed and tired to leave, he says. 
My roommates would think I was out of town until I'd come downstairs in the middle of the day to grab water or something. Once he was in this burned-out state, Leo couldn't follow through on the many commitments he had previously made. Deadlines would fly by, events would go by unattended, and dirty dishes would pile up in his desk. Yet by the time another semester came around, Leo would yet again find himself signing up for a full course load and taking on mountains of other responsibilities. I always thought, this time will be different, he says. I just figured I'd screwed up the last time because I wasn't organized and wasn't trying hard enough to do everything. Throughout his entire college career, Leo was convinced that his problem was a lack of motivation or effort, not that he was taking on too many responsibilities, so he kept getting buried and burned out. He couldn't seem to see a self-defeating pattern in his actions, or if he did, the laziness lie was preventing him from breaking out of it. As an adult, Leo remained very politically engaged while continuing to overextend himself. During the 2012 presidential election, he redoubled his efforts, traveling, organizing volunteers, and lending his time to the Obama campaign in every way he could. He started taking graduate school classes while working full-time. He also devoted as much of his free time as possible to having conversations with people who disagreed with him. He was willing to invest hours in changing the minds of politically disengaged Ohioans on issues such as LGBTQ plus rights and healthcare reform. Leo is a lover of strategy games and an avid reader of history and philosophy books. He lives in his head and thinks about long-term consequences rather than short-term impulses or needs. I think that's why it was hard for him to notice his own needs and limitations at times. He has to hit a wall before he even starts to see that he's tired. As a result, it took him years to realize his feelings of laziness weren't a threat, but rather a signal that he was pushing himself over the edge. Feelings of laziness are often a sign that someone hasn't been managing the demands of their day-to-day life in an optimal way. Our bodies have amazing methods of forcing us to get what we need. When we're hungry, our minds become preoccupied with food, our stomachs begin to rumble and fill with digestive acid, and we get progressively more cranky and lethargic until we're forced to stop what we're doing and eat. When we don't get enough sleep, our bodies make us feel more and more tired, enticing us to take a nap. If we still refuse to sleep, our brains may force us by taking millisecond-long micro-sleeps throughout the day. And when we don't give ourselves enough time to relax, the powerful urge to zone out and lose focus bleeds into our everyday lives. A graduate student of mine, Marvin, decided recently that he wanted to study the ways in which laziness leaks into people's lives against their will. He chose to focus on people's distracting themselves from stress and exhaustion by browsing Facebook or shopping online. It's a form of procrastination that most of us have intimate personal knowledge of. I don't know about you, but I do it almost every day. And in the social science literature, it's called cyberloafing. The average person cyberloafs many times per day, but it's particularly likely to happen when someone has just finished an intellectually strenuous task or when they're about to mentally shift gears from one activity to another. Research suggests that people tend to cyberloaf as a way to relax and reinvigorate their brains, which is essentially the same reason employees do things like chat over the water cooler or futz around in the supply closet looking for a pen they don't really need. 
Many employers and productivity experts absolutely loathe cyber loafing because they see it as a horribly lazy act, a theft of company time. One study conducted in 2014 estimated that cyber loafing costs employers $54 billion annually in lost productivity. But estimates like these make a big assumption, one we shouldn't take for granted, that time spent cyber loafing is time an employee could have spent being fully productive if only they weren't so lazy. Marvin wondered whether this was actually the case. As he began combing the scientific literature, Marvin found several studies that found cyberloafing to have benefits. A 2017 study by media researchers Shafat Hussein and Taptamayi Parida, for example, examined cyberloafing among administrative assistants in Ethiopia. The authors found that brief periods of cyberloafing actually helped admins fight the boredom that so often comes from hours and hours of transcribing documents, organizing files, making copies, and running office errands. Rather than sapping their productivity, taking a moment to cyberloaf helped these employees hit the mental refresh button so they could return to their work with renewed energy. Several other studies suggest employees become more productive and focused after a good cyberloafing session. Additionally, Marvin discovered studies showing that cyberloafing helps work teams to function better, and that employees who cyberloaf come up with more unique solutions to work problems. It turns out that slacking can actually help you be creative and reflective. Marvin also found compelling evidence that some amount of cyberloafing is unavoidable. Just as all employees need time to use the bathroom or take a lunch break, it appears that they also need time to rest their brains. When an employee spends hours concentrating on something, their willpower tends to erode and their impulse to cyberloaf becomes stronger and stronger. Eventually, their willpower breaks, and they find something, anything, to distract themselves with. Employers usually try to limit this behavior by monitoring employees' computer usage, using software to block websites like Facebook or Amazon, or simply chastising workers when they catch them in the act. However, many studies have shown that cyberloafing will continue to happen anyway. Most people require a bit of loafing time in order to remain happy and focused at work. To see it as a waste of company time is like seeing bathroom breaks as an unnecessary indulgence. When employees are unable to slack off using the internet, they find other ways to mentally escape. They waste time making cups of tea, sharpening pencils, or popping into coworkers' offices to say hello. Most workplace productivity studies consider behaviors like these to be a waste of company time as well, yet no one has found a way to get rid of them. That's because wasting time is important, healthy, and normal. Management may hate it, but spending time in these ways isn't actually a form of theft. It's a way of coming up for air. When employees are blocked from engaging in their preferred forms of loafing, their brains still find ways to take breaks, even if the only method available is staring off into space. So often, the urge to engage in behaviors that seem lazy is a sign that a person has worked hard enough and should just sit and be calm for a little while. Most of the jobs that humans perform require time for reflection, planning, or creativity. We aren't computers or robots. Just as we need to eat and sleep, we need time for goofing off and doing nothing. 
When we ignore that impulse to recharge for fear of seeming lazy, we risk facing dire consequences. Leo eventually reached his breaking point. When he was in his mid-twenties, he dropped out of graduate school, in part because he couldn't get the required mountains of reading done. To cope with his massive disappointment, he threw himself into his job and into politics and got involved in even more campaigns than ever before. But it was getting harder and harder for him to ignore how stressed he constantly was. He hopped between a couple of different jobs, raising funds for various campaigns and causes. No matter where he was hired, he kept getting into the same nasty patterns. By his early 30s, his workaholism and procrastination had put a major strain on his relationships as well as his mental health. I hadn't dated anyone in a couple years, he tells me. I hadn't gone on a vacation in forever. I couldn't justify traveling anywhere with friends because I was too busy, or I was brand new at a job and couldn't leave. Everybody else had a life, but I didn't. Around this time, Leo started seeing a therapist. She quickly took stock of his frantic mannerisms, the way his eyes darted anxiously around the room, and the distractibility and overexertion that defined his life, and took a guess at what the source of the problem was. She asked me on, like, my second visit if I had ever been assessed for ADHD, he says. And when I did get tested, I was off the charts. Before that moment, Leo had never considered it a possibility that he had ADHD. There's a very particular stereotype of the disorder people have in their minds. ADHD sufferers are seen as unintelligent or lacking ambition. Yet for Leo and for many other people with ADHD, the exact opposite is the case. It's very common for people with ADHD to overcommit to a variety of things they're passionate about and then run quickly and dramatically out of steam because they haven't realistically budgeted their time. I'll never forget the first time I hung out with Leo after he started taking ADHD medication and working on his overcommitment with a therapist. He didn't interrupt me with tons of observations and questions I couldn't follow the logic of. He had an easy sense of humor and could speak candidly about how hard his college years had been. He wasn't constantly flitting around the living room, anxiously tidying things, or letting out his nervous energy in little verbal tangents and ticks. He could sit through a movie without getting up or being distracted. He had also started recreationally smoking weed from time to time, a thing his younger, driven type A self would have found downright shameful. My intense, hard-working friend had finally found a way to chill out and stop fearing laziness. Around this time, Leo started dating his current boyfriend. He finally had the mental space to prioritize his own feelings and desires, and that made getting close to someone else much easier. In the couple of years that they've been dating, they've gone on several long vacations and adventures, visiting national parks and museums, mountaineering and kayaking. Leo wasn't someone who could enjoy and luxuriate in downtime like this before. But now he seems to relish it. After repeatedly overcommitting, ignoring his needs, and then dramatically burning out, Leo has slowly learned how to find enjoyment in life. When the two of us discuss politics nowadays, he remains engaged and informed. But there's a clear emotional distance between his self-image and how well his favorite politicians are doing. He's capable of disengaging in a way he never could before. 
I never thought a straight-laced, politics-obsessed person like him would turn into a chilled-out, nature-loving weed smoker. But I'm so happy for him that he did. The seemingly bad behaviors we tend to judge as laziness are really powerful signals that something in our lives needs to change. On the organizational level, patterns of employee laziness can tell us a workplace is being mismanaged. One workplace productivity expert I spoke to, industrial organizational psychologist Dr. Annette Towler, told me that when employees are bullied or mismanaged, they often cope with it through subtle signs of laziness, such as increased absenteeism. That's one of the early, subtle signs that a workplace is toxic, she told me. You see a lot of employees just not coming in to work, with no explanation or cause. Managers look at that and they think, oh, everyone is being so lazy or so unreliable. But often, it's that they're trying to avoid an abusive or toxic environment. When a person has been stretched to their limit, they may start to seem flaky and checked out. They might come in to work late or cancel plans with friends at the last minute. They'll have less drive to do chores or cook meals and may take frequent naps or zone out by playing repetitive video games. In general, they'll have worse impulse control and far less energy than they used to. These aren't signs that someone is a screw-up or a failure. They're signs of a person pushed to the brink. Though these lazy behaviors have been demonized for centuries, there's actually nothing evil or damaging about them. Slacking off is a normal part of life. People require idle time in order to remain clear-headed and healthy. Feelings of laziness are also a powerful internal alarm signaling to us that we need additional help, more breaks, or reduced demands. By listening to this laziness, we can better understand our needs and construct lives that are truly worth living. Listening to Laziness After Max's dead necrotic gallbladder was discovered and taken out of her body, she finally got to enjoy some much-needed bed rest and a break from her grueling job at the information technology firm. She had officially become too sick to work. She had a doctor's note and the healing incisions to prove it. Those weeks after gallbladder surgery were the best weeks of my life, Max says without any irony. I just slept and lay around and watched movies. It was so fucking fun. I wish it would happen to me again. I'll give up another organ if I can get some more rest. Max told me when her stress at work was at its very worst, she was so mentally drained that she couldn't sit through films anymore. Though she was an avid lover of horror movies, true crime documentaries, and all things gruesome and dark, the demands of her job had zapped her energy so drastically that she could no longer focus on them. For a whole year, she says, all I watched was Bob's Burgers, which is a great show, I like that show, but it was the only thing simple and comforting enough for my mind to handle. For a year, because I was working 80 to 90 hour weeks, and anything that was upsetting or had a complicated plot was just too much for me to process. Once she finally had a few days to sleep and recuperate, Max found that she was able to sit through long movies and documentaries again. On bed rest, she had renewed interest in her hobbies. She started making witchy handcrafts again 
Soon, she felt far less hopeless and depressed. Though we normally think of a medical emergency as being a traumatic and taxing experience, Max's gallbladder surgery marked a significant positive turning point in her life. When she had the chance to relax, she started reevaluating her life. She'd been given a glimpse of what a healthier, sustainable existence could be like and how wonderful it felt to get enough sleep. That made it impossible to go back to her old patterns. Laziness had given Max the gift of insight, and it can do the same for many of us if we let it. Laziness helps us be creative. When we're able to rest and be lazy, we can learn new things about ourselves or have fantastic insights that would never have occurred to us when we were focused on work. Psychologists who study creativity are often very interested in these big aha moments and have put a lot of effort into studying what a person can do to promote them. It turns out that laziness is one of the most effective steps to getting there. Moments of insight and creativity don't come by trying to force them. They require a period of mental inactivity. Good ideas often come to us when we've stopped trying to come up with them, such as when we're in the shower or on a leisurely walk. While it seems like these ideas have come out of nowhere, the truth is that our minds have been quietly and unconsciously developing them during our downtime. Psychologists call this productive downtime the incubation period like an egg that must be kept warm and safe in order to develop into a healthy chick, the creative parts of our minds require safety, rest, and relaxation in order to produce unique ideas or insights. Whenever I explain this principle to people, I'm reminded of a moment from the show Mad Men. The successful, charismatic advertising executive Don Draper is giving advice to Peggy, a young, ambitious copywriter who's struggling to come up with a tagline for a client's new product. In just a few short sentences, Don perfectly explains the concept of creative incubation. Just think about it deeply, he says to her, and then forget it. An idea will jump up in your face. I've had good ideas jump up in my face in that way. In 2013, I was a frazzled graduate student struggling to come up with a research topic for my dissertation. I spent hours staring at academic articles, trying to make myself arrive at a creative idea through sheer force. Predictably, it didn't work. I started to get really frustrated with myself for failing so miserably. Dejected and feeling guilty, I took a few days off to celebrate my birthday and visit some friends. One day during that vacation, I was on a long walk with a friend and we found ourselves in the parking lot of a Michael's craft store. We were there to buy spray paint and fake flowers for a wreath my friend was putting together. Suddenly, a fully formed research idea popped into my head. I had to stop right where I was and jot down the details in the notes app on my phone to make sure I didn't lose them. Though I had felt guilty all that week for being lazy and not working on my dissertation, it turned out that my unconscious mind was actually doing a lot of powerful work. I just had to step back and give it the room to be creative for me. Laziness helps us problem solve. In Max's case, it took a period of bed rest and a ton of bloody horror movies to realize her life needed to dramatically change. And she needed the creative insight a long, restful incubation period provided her in order to figure out how to go about making that change. 
Max knew she would have to fight to build and maintain a sustainable life for herself. It wasn't going to be handed to her. When she came back from medical leave, her office was still going to be inefficient and poorly managed. Her boss would still be the same intense, borderline abusive woman who discouraged her employees from taking sick days. In order for Max to protect her newfound health, she would have to push against these power structures and prioritize her own well-being. And she'd have to be strategic about how she did it. As soon as she got back to work, Max began documenting whenever her boss gave contradictory instructions. She began collecting evidence of how work was done in her department so she could demonstrate that when applications were late, she wasn't to blame. From there, Max scheduled meetings with upper management to discuss problems she'd noticed in how responsibilities were being assigned. This persuaded them to hire additional employees, who took on some of Max's old duties. Her workload gradually lightened. Now, when Max needs a sick day, she takes it, even if her boss has something undermining to say about it. When my boss tries to ask me if I'm sure I need a sick day, I really push back on it, Max says. Like, I'll make sure that I ask for the day off in an email, and if she hedges, I'll ask her if she's requiring me to come into work even though I'm sick. She knows that it's actually illegal for her to refuse sick days to employees, but I have to find ways to subtly remind her that I know that. This may seem like a drastic or extreme measure, but it makes sense given her boss's track record. For some of us, the process of learning to set work-life boundaries is largely an internal exercise. In far too many cases, however, the pressure to overexert ourselves comes from the outside. Overworked, poorly managed employees often have to advocate for themselves using every legal protection available. They may need to band together with other employees and push for a change in policy. That's what Max did. After several months of repeated problems, she compared notes with other employees and was able to demonstrate to the higher-ups that her boss was not running things correctly. This also helped her to negotiate a more forgiving work schedule. Things are far from perfect at Max's job. She still regularly fantasizes about quitting, and the work is still generally unrewarding and exhausting. But today, Max says she has only one 80-hour work week per month instead of every single week of the year. She makes time for painting, ghost hunting tours, and volunteer work. She's also in therapy, working to repair some of the damage that years of being overworked did to her personal life. Perhaps most important, she now has the brain space to watch as many bloody gothic horror films as she wants. Max's illness gave her the opportunity to remember how good laziness feels, those weeks that she spent in bed rejuvenated her and turned her focus back on what truly mattered in her life. With a less stress-addled, run-down mind, she was able to come up with a game plan for how to advocate for herself better and to fix several key sources of dysfunction in her work. When we consciously make time for idleness and embrace our naturally lazy feelings rather than pushing them away, we can learn what matters to us and which demands need to be dialed way back. With a rejuvenated, relaxed mind, we can see new solutions to old problems and find new reserves of strength we didn't know we had. Laziness reminds us of what matters. 
When you have a lot of responsibilities on your plate, your instinct is probably to hunker down and get as much done as possible. However, a lot of research suggests it's better to hit the pause button, find time to be lazy, and see what realizations and reactions come bubbling up. By slowing down and cutting back, we can figure out which demands in our lives we can afford to let go of. When we stop seeing laziness as the enemy, we can begin to feel good about that act of letting go. August Stockwell runs an organization called Upswing Advocates, which trains mental health professionals on how to meet the needs of LGBTQ clients, as well as clients with disabilities such as autism and ADHD. It's a time-consuming and demanding job with lots of administrative tasks, meetings, and phone conferences. It can also be an emotionally difficult job because it involves speaking with therapists and counselors about some of their struggles with their clients. For years, these demands took a toll on August's mental health. I figured out at some point that I was living in a state of hypervigilance all the time, August tells me. I didn't have good professional boundaries. I would say yes to everything because there were so many awesome things to be doing, and I'd lose touch with myself. August tells me that for a long time, they based their priorities on whatever was looming largest at work. Their attention went to whatever seemed to be the biggest fire in need of putting out. That's when they put their training as a behavioral analyst to work and developed a way to make it more manageable. August shows me a spreadsheet that they use to keep track of weekly responsibilities and objectives. It has fields for all kinds of weekly goals, not just work-related ones. There are fields for things like spending time with romantic partners, meditating, taking walks, and scheduling phone calls with loved ones. Everything that matters in August's life is in this spreadsheet. On the right-hand side of the spreadsheet, August marks down whether they've met a particular goal for the week. Did I attend this meeting? Did I have a phone call with this friend like I intended to? In addition, there's also a field where August can record how they feel about whether that particular goal was met. An example of what August includes on their spreadsheet follows. Goal categories. Reflection, physical health, rest, work, relationships, errands, and life tasks. For reflection, their goal for the week was to meditate at least two days. Priority, high. Completion, yes. Feelings, good. For physical health, their goal for this week, exercise at least one day. Priority, medium. Completion, need to exercise. Feelings, okay. Goal category, rest. The goal for this week, take three days off. Priority, high. Completion, took two days off. Feelings, okay. For work, their goal for this week was to hold webinar, send thank you cards to donors. Priority, high. Completion, remaining thank yous. Feelings, okay. For relationships, their goal for this week was to tell my partners how I'm doing. Priority, high. Completion, yes. Feelings, okay. For errands and life tasks, their goal for this week was to clean their apartment and deposit check. Priority, medium. Completion, yes. Also sent password name change. Feelings, good. This spreadsheet system allows August to notice which goals they regularly miss as well as how they feel about missing those goals. Rather than judging themselves for failing to meet a goal, August observes where their motivation and their laziness 
has taken them and figures out what lessons laziness has to teach. For example, if they repeatedly miss household chore goals but don't feel particularly bad about it, that may tell them that having a perfectly tidy house isn't such an important goal. Often, this helps them to create new goals that reflect their actual values rather than beating themselves up for not being able to do everything all the time. All of this helps me focus more on myself and my actual experiences rather than just on other people, August says. It helps me ask myself, how am I doing? What do I actually want? Am I happy? If I'm not, does it still feel worth it to focus on these goals? In a world ruled by the laziness lie, giving up on an obligation can feel painful. Yet the more we learn to observe our own patterns and learn from them without judgment, the more we can build authentic lives that actually allow us to thrive. Lin-Manuel Miranda, the writer and star of the musical Hamilton, famously came up with a concept for the show while reading a history book on vacation with his wife. He didn't go on vacation hoping to come up with a concept for a new musical. He was just trying to find a way to relax after seven nonstop years of performing in his show In the Heights. Yet, the moment he had time to truly recharge, he arrived at a creative breakthrough that changed his life forever. After Hamilton's massive, unprecedented success, Miranda had to force himself to find time for a vacation again. Fans of the show were dismayed when he left the performing cast. But in interviews, Miranda emphasized the importance of laziness. It's no accident that the best idea I've ever had in my life, perhaps maybe the best one I'll ever have in my life, came to me on vacation, Miranda told an interviewer in 2018. The moment my brain got a moment's rest, Hamilton walked into it. Though the laziness lie would love for us to believe otherwise, idleness can help us to be insightful creators and problem solvers. But the value of laziness also goes so much deeper than that. When we give our lives space for slowness, relaxation, and doing nothing, we can begin to heal some of our greatest wounds and to create lives for ourselves that are nourishing rather than exhausting. How doing less can heal us. When my therapist Jason first told me to try sitting around and doing absolutely nothing for half an hour so I could truly feel my feelings, I thought he was absolutely full of shit. Nobody does that, I told him. Literally no human has ever just sat perfectly still and calmly done nothing for that long. At the time Jason gave me this advice, I was struggling to deal with my emotions. The federal government had just withdrawn its anti-discrimination protections for transgender people. People were being held in cages at the U.S.-Mexico border. Many of my friends were living in fear that the Affordable Care Act was going to be overturned, causing them to lose access to life-saving medical care. The world felt like it was burning down. And even worse, my more conservative relatives didn't seem to see how they were complicit in all of it. My despair and rage felt too large to deal with, and so I just silenced it as best I could. All day long, I'd push back any feelings of sadness or anxiety so I could focus on work and activism. I went to protests and rallies. I called my political representatives. I supported my scared friends and tried to stay strong. At night, when I was trying to fall asleep, 
I'd experience a flood of emotions, either sobbing or seething with rage. My partner hated how I'd mope for hours without telling him what was bothering me. I'd refuse to tell him about any problems I was facing and then blow up over something trivial days later. I'd waste days resenting something a friend or relative had said, but never actually tell them they'd hurt me. Emotions were for weak, unproductive people, I thought. I just had to keep them at bay. Jason wasn't on board with the push emotions away and pretend I'm an unfeeling robot plan. It clearly wasn't working, and it wasn't a sustainable way to deal with stress or past trauma. So he told me to schedule time at least once a week to sit and do nothing and to truly feel whatever emotions came up. For a few weeks, I protested. It sounded like a completely fake, touchy-feely, ridiculous idea. It sounds insane to me that anyone would ever do this, I told him. I can't imagine somebody just sitting there and crying for no reason and then feeling better somehow. If any patient tells you they actually do that, they're lying to get you off their case, I swear. Through all my complaints and resistance, Jason laughed and rolled his eyes. He insisted that yes, some people really do just sit there and let themselves feel whatever they need to feel, and that it can be immensely helpful. And he emphasized, yet again, that I really ought to give it a try. It turns out that there's a lot of scientific evidence supporting Jason's suggestion. Over the decades, research has demonstrated that finding time to sit still, be nonproductive, and become attuned with one's emotions can be therapeutic and improve a person's physical and mental health. In 1985, the therapist, James Pennebaker, began to study how expressing painful emotions in writing could be healing. Researchers already knew that talking about hard feelings with a therapist was helpful, and having close friends to confide in also helped people to cope. But Pennebaker wanted to know whether people could feel better after sharing their emotions with themselves by sitting down and writing about them. Pennebaker tested this by getting together a sample of trauma survivors and chronic illness sufferers and instructing them to sit down for 20 minutes each day and write about how they were feeling. Here are the instructions he gave them. 1. Find a time and place where you won't be disturbed. 2. Write continuously for at least 20 minutes. 3. Don't worry about spelling or grammar. 4. Write only for yourself. 5. Write about something extremely personal and important for you. 6. Deal only with events or situations you can handle now. Pennebaker told his study participants to write nonstop for 20 minutes about a source of emotional upheaval in their lives. Their writing was allowed to be messy and even nonsensical. The point of the exercise was to get the feelings out on the page, not to produce something beautifully well-written. If participants ran out of things to say, Pennebaker instructed them to keep writing anyway, even if it meant just repeating what they'd already put down at the beginning. After the 20 minutes was done, the participants were welcome to throw the pages out. Pennebaker and his colleagues found that after a couple of weeks of doing this writing exercise, people reported lower stress and less depression. They slept better and had more energy, 
even their vital signs and immune system functioning got significantly better. In follow-up studies, Pennebaker and others found that writing about feelings in this way helped a person to ruminate less on the things that bothered them and improved their coping skills. As more and more researchers tested the method on a wider and wider array of patients, the numerous benefits of the practice became even more apparent. Pennebaker had found a simple, accessible treatment that helped people become more in tune with their feelings and needs, and it seemed to benefit people with a variety of physical and mental illnesses. This research became the basis of Pennebaker's landmark book, Writing to Heal, a guided journal for recovering from trauma and emotional upheaval, and what he called the expressive writing method. Expressive writing is regularly used today to help everyone from veterans suffering from PTSD to cancer patients dealing with uncertain futures to all manner of people who suffer from stress, anxiety, grief, and depression. I still find it kind of hard to believe, but countless studies have consistently shown the healing power of slowing down, being nonproductive, and listening to one's emotions. Why does expressive writing work so well? Because it forces us to confront painful feelings that we usually downplay. We live in a world that preaches the gospel of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and that lionizes the strong and invulnerable. Because of this cultural messaging and all the pressure it places on us, we learn to ignore our needs. We may even hate ourselves for having feelings of weakness or for harboring difficult emotions. Expressive writing seems to work because it gives us the opportunity to locate and listen to the vulnerable side of ourselves that we spend all day silencing. It's also crucial that the writing process not be about creating something that another person will ever view. When we write for other people, we censor ourselves and focus on whether what we're creating is good enough. Expressive writing is specifically designed to be non-productive. You allow yourself to write something messy, something that isn't fit for anyone else to ever read, and then you throw it out. This can help a person connect with every feeling they have, no matter how unpleasant it is. My colleague, Dr. Bella Ettingen, is a researcher at the Veterans Affairs Hospital in Hines, Illinois. She has often used expressive writing to help veterans with PTSD. Part of what makes it such an effective therapeutic method for veterans is that it allows them to be vulnerable and to listen to their emotions in a totally private, unembarrassing way. Lots of these macho military guys hate talking about their feelings or their trauma with a therapist, Bella told me back when she was first beginning research on the power of expressive writing. But if you ask them to just sit down and write down how they feel and tell them that they can throw out the writing after the fact, it's a lot less threatening to their masculinity or to seeing themselves as tough. I can relate to the macho military guys Bella told me about. I'm not tough or super masculine, but I do hate the idea of sitting around and talking about my feelings. I find the whole process kind of cringe-inducing and shameful. Patriarchy and the laziness lie worked together for decades to make me suspicious of soft, feminine-seeming things such as crying or talking about emotions, even when my own repression started to eat me alive. A lot of society's most popular self-care methods have gotten an unfair reputation in this way. They're seen as frivolous, 
feminine, and not suitable for anyone who wants to appear strong. Taking a bubble bath, lighting some candles, getting a massage, these are seen as lazy, wasteful extravagances, not essentials. Or so we're taught. Eventually, though, many of us come to realize that these gentle, healing activities are absolutely wonderful, and we need to fight back against the cultural brainwashing that tells us to avoid them. After several weeks of protesting Jason's suggestion, I finally gave feeling my feelings a try. Once a week, I set aside half an hour to jot down a few notes about the things in my life that were making me unhappy. To help me get into the right mindset, I'd play music that helped me identify what was bothering me and how I felt about it. I'd cry while I did it, or feel myself getting pissed. Every single second of it sucked. I hated it. It was painful being reminded of every bit of grief I was carrying, every sad or wounded feeling that was stifled and buried deep inside me. During those sessions, I felt utterly pathetic. After I was done, I'd throw the notes out and go take a walk, trying to shake off the shame I still felt about having human vulnerabilities and weaknesses. After a couple of weeks of feeling my feelings like Jason recommended, I noticed I was no longer crying myself to sleep. I started communicating my feelings to my partner and my friends as soon as they came up instead of brooding for weeks. It suddenly felt less threatening to admit that I was sad or angry. Because I wasn't constantly running away from those feelings, I was able to air them with significantly less shame. I also started noticing patterns in the things I chose to write about each week. I saw that certain obligations, like a weekly genderqueer support group I used to attend, always came up in my writing as a source of stress. Every single week, I dreaded going. Once I noticed this pattern, I found it a lot easier to stop attending the group. After a few months of making time to feel my feelings, I was finally able to sit down with my partner and have a hard but necessary conversation about money that I'd literally been putting off for years. It radically changed how we divide up responsibilities in our house and how we think and talk about our future together. My relationships with my conservative relatives improved as well. One day, about six months into the process, my mom said something unintentionally hurtful on the phone. Normally, I would have been distant with her for the rest of the call and then spent the next few days fuming about it. But this time, I had the presence of mind to stop the conversation and tell her that I was upset by what she'd said. I immediately felt like some demon of resentment had been exercised from my body. I was getting more attuned to my emotions. This silly-sounding, feeling-my-feelings thing was actually paying off. Expressive writing worked so well for me that I started recommending it to friends dealing with hard, emotionally fraught situations and to students of mine with test anxiety. I also suggest it to friends who, like me, find themselves getting lost in their own fears about the future of our world. Whenever I mention this to my therapist, he gives me the smuggest I-told-you-so grin in the universe. But what can I say? That vulnerable-seeming bullshit isn't actually bullshit at all. Expressive writing is a great way to connect with our emotions and enjoy the healing benefits of laziness. Another popular and effective method is meditation. Just as research has highlighted the benefits of expressive writing, 
Science indicates that meditation improves blood pressure, immune system functioning, and mental health as well. August Stockwell regularly works meditation into their spreadsheet of weekly goals, and they've found that the more they meditate, the more they're able to calm their nerves and identify what matters most to them in life. This, in turn, has helped them to set better boundaries. By meditating a lot, August says, I contacted the calm mental state that I want to live in as much as I can. It helps me see when I need to say no to more things. Before August started meditating, they didn't realize how anxious and overloaded they constantly were. They had gotten so accustomed to being hyper-busy that they had forgotten there was an alternative. Meditation reminded them that they were capable of moving slowly, appreciating silence, and feeling present in the moment. I keep reminding myself, meditating doesn't solve any problems, August says. And also, it's the most important place to start. To put it another way, meditation is the most important place to start because it's not intended to solve any problems. Like expressive writing and finding various ways to do nothing, it's explicitly about abandoning goals for a little while, letting go of stress, and restoring energy and well-being in the process. Embracing laziness can have a revolutionary impact on our quality of life. When we stop measuring our worth by how many items we check off of a to-do list, we can finally begin to seek out the activities that truly matter to us. When we set priorities based on our real feelings rather than society's shoulds, we feel a greater sense of authenticity. And when we savor our free time and work to move at a slower, lazier, more intuitive pace, we begin to repair the damage that years of overwork has done. Chapter 3 You Deserve to Work Less Dr. Annette Towler is an industrial organizational psychologist. Her research focuses on how changes to the workplace influence how people feel and behave. For years, she conducted studies on a variety of topics related to how employees are managed in this country and how management decisions impact productivity and well-being. Her work has examined questions such as whether a manager can be trained to be more charismatic. They can. Whether the size of a teacher's salary is related to how well their students do in school. It is. And whether people in healthy relationships make better employees than people in unhealthy relationships. They do. Annette's expertise is vast. Her work has appeared in some of the most prestigious academic journals in her field, and for many years, she was a tenured professor at DePaul University, just down the street from me in Chicago. But one day, she decided to leave it all behind for a more authentic, joy-filled life. Annette was at the height of her career when she decided to leave her cushy, tenured position for less consistent, less secure work as a freelance writer and consultant. For many, this would have been a terrifyingly risky move, but for her, the path forward was clear. After decades of studying what makes a workplace healthy, and conversely, what can make a workplace toxic, Annette could tell her own academic department was leaning more and more into the toxic side. Once I got tenured, I felt pressure to start bullying people below me, Annette says. Faculty would bully students in my department, and senior faculty would bully junior faculty. It was just expected of you to be part of that. 
Annette noticed that faculty and students in her department were stressed out and overextended. There was a great deal of pressure to perform at a high level at all times, without breaks or time for rest and reflection. People tended to monitor and judge the behavior and productivity of others. Burned out, miserable faculty members offloaded their stress onto those below them. There was an overall climate of bitterness and cynicism. In short, Annette's office was like far too many offices in America, almost perfectly designed to create traumatized, exhausted people. Since Annette had personally studied the toll that such workplaces can have on their employees, she knew she needed to get out. I pretty much gave up on the profession after that, she tells me. Today, Annette lives a life that her own research would recommend. She finds time for marathon runs and for making art. She's working on a mystery novel and volunteers regularly to support survivors of domestic violence. And though she has a lot of freelance work to do, she deliberately puts other things first, including making time to be interviewed by me. I prioritize the important things and invest my time and interests in what matters to me, Annette says. And that's what the psychological literature says a person should do. So, you know, I could be working on some deadline I'm worried about that is ultimately arbitrary, or I could be doing what I want to be doing, which is talking to you. Annette has an easygoing, open perspective on life. She has carved out an existence for herself that lets those wonderful qualities shine. But she was able to build that kind of existence only because she had the privilege and the knowledge to avoid what was bad for her. The conventional, restrictive, overly demanding workplace. Many organizations have been shaped by the history and values of the laziness lie, often with disastrous results. The typical workday is structured around the expectation that a person should be able to sit down and churn out results for eight hours or more, despite overwhelming evidence that this is unrealistic. Managers often believe they must micromanage their employees and attempt to squeeze every last moment of productivity out of them, though research suggests this makes people irritable and unmotivated. Overworked employees are often encouraged to police one another's habits and to spread their shared misery throughout a department, creating a contagion of unwellness and bad boundaries. Thanks to the development of digital work tools, the pressure to be available and useful to an employer at any time of day has only grown, and our shared sense of exhaustion and burnout has gotten more and more intense. Though many of us feel guilty for not being productive enough, the truth is that most of us are doing far more work than is healthy. We're pushing our bodies and minds to the limit, ignoring the natural warning signs of tiredness and laziness and encouraging others to do the same. When we push ourselves in that way for a prolonged period, we risk suffering from severe fatigue and burnout. If we want to break free of these damaging patterns, we need to embrace our very human needs and our natural laziness signals and find ways to work less, not more. We're working more than ever before. In Chapter 1, I discussed how our collective fear and hatred of laziness has its roots in the history of slavery and capitalism. I also described how the laziness lie was used to justify pushing industrial-era workers into grueling 16-hour workdays filled with danger and abuse. Unfortunately, 
this historical legacy remains very relevant today. Though there was a time when the average work week kept getting shorter and shorter in length, thanks in large part to unions and the labor movement, that pattern has sadly reversed in recent years. The average workday is getting longer now, not shorter. We see the pressure to overwork in nearly every industry and professional field. Smartphones, laptops, and digital work tools such as email and Slack have made it harder than ever for us to leave our work behind when we go home for the day. And thanks to the rise of the gig economy, the pressure to fill even our spare moments with additional labor and side hustles has expanded our workloads even more. The work week is getting longer. The Industrial Revolution brought with it the rise of the industrial, warehouse-based workplace. Factory employees were toiling all day long in dangerous, dark conditions, unable to make time for anything in their lives other than sleep. There were very few legal protections in place for employees, and many were given no compensation if they got injured on the job. Abuse of employees was rampant, with many not even being given a lunch hour or bathroom breaks. Workers began banding together and staging walkouts, demonstrations, and strikes in order to protest how they were being treated. This went on for years and was intensely and violently resisted by employers as well as police and the U.S. military. Eventually, though, the labor movement began winning legal battles and unions were invited to the negotiation table. Slowly but surely, employees earned the right to more benefits, greater legal protections, and workdays that were less punishingly long. For decades afterward, there was an overall trend in the U.S. toward shorter workdays, greater pay, and more benefits. Through the mid-20th century, Many working-class people enjoyed newfound levels of comfort and wealth. Millennials, like me, grew up hearing about this era from our parents and grandparents. I know it, for example, as the time period that allowed my Appalachian grandparents to make the move from the impoverished Cumberland Gap region of Tennessee up to the middle-class Cleveland suburb where I got to grow up. It was a time of high economic prosperity in the U.S., particularly for white and white-passing people, like most of my relatives. That era, however, is long gone. In the past two decades, the average work week has gotten longer and longer instead of getting shorter as it once did. By 2014, the average American's work week had crept up from 40 hours to over 47. In a survey conducted by Gallup in 2018, 44% of respondents said they worked more than 45 hours per week. Of that 44%, 12% reported working 60 hours or more hours per week. That's 12 hours of work per day. While at least 134 other countries have placed legal limits on how many hours a person is permitted to work, in the U.S. there is no legal maximum, so the length of the work week can continue climbing up and up. In some organizations, working overtime isn't even viewed as an extra push of effort. Instead, it's considered a weekly obligation. When my friend Eli took a job with a massive Silicon Valley tech company last year, they were dismayed to learn that every employee in their department was pre-approved for 10 overtime hours every single week. This alone made Eli hesitant to take the job. Were these extra 10 hours really overtime if they were regularly expected? In the past few decades, 
employees have also found a variety of ways to cram greater productivity into each hour they work. Thanks to digital tools, automation, increased computer processing speed, and a ton of other factors, it now takes the average worker just 11 hours to complete what would have been 40 hours worth of work back in 1950. Yet, despite how much more people are working and how much more output they're generating, wages have declined over the years instead of going up. In addition to working more hours, employees today report higher levels of stress than recent generations did, particularly stress associated with job duties and poor management. Pensions and health insurance have also been affected in many industries, either being removed entirely or made far less generous than they were a decade or more ago. Many companies have moved toward relying on part-time employees instead of full-timers, so they don't have to offer benefits. In a very real way, many of us are working far more and more productively than ever before, and yet we're getting far, far less in return. We can't leave work at work. Though Annette has lived in the U.S. and studied American workplaces for many years, she's originally from England. She's noticed that compared to Europeans, Americans have a particularly dysfunctional relationship to work. When Europeans go to work, they just do their job, and then they come home, she says. And they understand about the importance of relaxation, that balance that you don't always see in the United States. It's true that Americans tend to have trouble drawing firm boundaries between work and the rest of our lives. Compared to Europeans, who often have upward of 20 paid vacation days per year, American employees are lucky if they get 10 to 14. The laziness lie has also infected numerous American employees with a strong sense of vacation guilt, which makes it hard for us to feel comfortable actually using those vacation days up. A survey by Glassdoor found that in 2018, Americans used only about half of their paid vacation days and let the remainder go completely to waste. We have a similarly tortured relationship to sick days. Almost half of all working Americans don't have paid days off for physical or mental wellness, and those who do are hesitant to use them. Like Max, whose boss manipulated her into not calling in sick, Many of us fear that taking time off will make us look like lazy, unreliable workers, and we're not paranoid for having that fear. In 2019, American Airlines was sued by New York City's Department of Consumer and Work Protection for having punished and threatened workers who used their sick days. When companies fail to provide employees with adequate sick leave policies and managers bully their workers into working while ill, the public health consequences are massive. Many sick employees spread the coronavirus to their coworkers and fellow commuters because they weren't able to take time off from work in the early days of the pandemic. On a more mundane level, sick food service employees often have no choice but to come into work and spread their illness to fellow workers and patrons. 81% of food industry workers have no employer-provided sick days. When people do get the chance to leave their workplaces, they still struggle with the temptation to continue working remotely. Email, Slack, Twitter, and other applications make many workplaces accessible at all times, and as a result, work seeps into all hours of the day. Researchers call this work-home interference. And since smartphones and other tools have become widely accessible, it's gotten much, much worse. 
36% of survey respondents told Gallup that they frequently check work email outside of regular work hours. And in organizations where people feel the social pressure to be available online all the time, the work-home interference rate is much worse. One overworked person that I spoke to, Nimisir, is a sexual health advocate and educator based in Nigeria. She tells me that she has to place a firm digital boundary on her activism for the sake of her well-being. I do a lot of online education and advocacy, she says, and it can be very exhausting. I have to mute certain words on Twitter, words about sexual trauma or objectification, for example, and sometimes I just put my phone away. Educating people is part of my job, but I have to trust that I can set a limit on how I do that and know that I will still be doing work that's important. Many people don't share Nimisir's level of self-discipline. We get pulled into an endless loop of replying to messages, checking for new notifications, and doing unpaid work long after our time in the office is done. With the rise of things like the gig economy, work-life interference has become an even more pressing problem. We're caught in the gig economy. Alex works full-time as an administrative assistant in the Chicago Loop. All day long, he edits documents, takes meeting notes, makes copies, and runs errands. During rare moments of quiet in the office, Alex tries to catch up on creative projects. He's an actor and a performer, so there are always new lines for him to memorize and new auditions to try to book. At the end of an already long, crammed workday, Alex gets home and fires up the website Upwork to look for some side jobs as a copywriter or a transcriptionist. I end up doing the transcription work more often than the writing. Even though it pays less, Alex says, it just takes less energy to do it. I can kind of just zone out and write the words down, even if I feel like a zombie. When taking Upwork's fees and time spent finding new clients into account, Alex's transcription job pays much less than minimum wage. But it's better than nothing, he says, and it allows him to squeeze a few more hours of earning potential out of his day. A lot of us have turned to sites like Upwork, TaskRabbit, Uber, Lyft, Fiverr, or Grubhub in order to make supplementary income. After all, full-time jobs with benefits are rapidly becoming a thing of the past. The harder it gets to make a conventional 9-to-5 living, the more people have to fill their weekends, evenings, and other spare moments with money-making side hustles like these. I know more people like Alex than I could ever possibly name. The gig economy has arrived in full force, and it swallowed up the free time and brain space of every driven millennial artist I know. Ricky drives for Uber in the mornings and evenings, when he's not busy giving singing lessons and performing in choirs. Dio uses the app WAG to find work as a dog walker, supplementing the income he made as an ice cream shop manager. I used to edit people's academic papers for about $20 an hour on Upwork, until I got too busy to fit that side hustle into my life anymore. I still feel the urge to get on there sometimes and convert my free time into a profit source. So many of us have been pushed over the edge. Our economy is structured around the hatred of laziness, and it has us working longer and longer hours with each passing year. Many of us don't know how to walk away from our jobs, whether for a vacation, a sick day, or simply to relax at home at the end of a shift. Apps like 
Foxtrot, Upwork, TaskRabbit, and Uber beckon us to work even in our spare time and tempt us to set even more strenuous and unsustainable goals. All this intense overcommitment and overwork is ultimately self-defeating and harmful. In truth, a person can only work so much. You can work only so much. Human beings are not robots. We can't keep churning out consistent results for hours and hours. In fact, we can't maintain consistent output for more than a couple of hours per day. People often find this startling to learn, but it's really true. We were not made to work for a full eight hours per day, despite that being considered the reasonable, humane workday length in much of the world. Though there's a great deal of social pressure and cultural programming that says otherwise, being productive and effective at work is not a simple act of will and determination. To do good work, a person has to rest and find moments to enjoy